can't get enough of football? Chance, goal, superhuman, special, special goal. Incredible, just incredible. Now you can get the inside look. Welcome to Football Insiders, your home for informed, insightful and independent opinion, news and talk on football from the team behind Fair Play Publishing and the Football Writers Festival. Oh, what an introduction! Welcome to another edition of Football Insiders, the podcast home of Fair Play Publishing and the Football Writers Festival. We're continuing sharing the sessions from the 2020 Football Writers Festival, and this one was probably one of the most anticipated sessions. There was a lot of really good content all across the two days, but this one was Saturday evening, and we called it the FWF Supper Club, with three people who have made an enormous contribution to football media and football journalism and football writing over several decades, actually one of whom um, is Ray Gatt, who wrote for The Australian and others for so many years, Murray Shaw um, from Fox Sports, who's now been um, nabbed by rugby or nabbed by nine-stroke stand to work in rugby, and Simon Hill. They're talking to Adrian Archuli from SBS TV. Sit back and enjoy it. Have a glass of wine while you listen to this one. Firstly, obviously, any walk of life, you meet characters. Um, so I'll start with you, Gaddy, um, being the oldest. Thanks. Sorry, sorry. Uh, who was your funniest character in football? But if it doesn't have to be football, but in terms of your football journalism career. Oh God! When you tell me before, I could have thought about about funniest character. My goodness, I'd have to think long and hard about that. Um, funniest guy. A lot of guys I've run into over the, over the years. Um, probably the, the guy from um, Sydney Olympic who was uh, the fan, Andrew. Hatsianu. Uh, yeah, something like that. Yeah, Mad- madman, funny, funny guy. Just every Sydney Olympic game, St George Stadium, be up and down the stands and, oh, Olympic, oh, Olympic, and he was just, he was off the tree, off the planet. But, uh, <laughs> very, very funny guy. Very funny guy. But Muzz, who is your favourite character? Uh, in football, um, I used to enjoy the company of uh, Miron Blyberg. Um, he, was, he was always extremely entertaining. Um, I think probably I could rattle off three good Miron stories and probably everyone else in this room that knows him would probably have another one. There's the... Um, uh, what was it? I'd give my right hand to beat Sydney FC this weekend. No, I play tennis with my right hand. You can have my left hand. Um, and when Frank Farina was, it was when Frank Farina was uh, being linked to his job at Brisbane Raw, and he said, "Every day I look in the mirror and I see Frank Farina. It's it's called paranoia." Um, and he was great with those sort of lines. So Miron was always good for the game, and probably part of the reason why um, the A League was so enjoyable for those first few years and probably kicked off on the right note because he had characters like Miron. Whether or not he could coach, I'm sure people would have different views on that, but he was certainly good value. Sure Simon, was. for you, who was your uh, favourite character you've encountered during your football career? Um, in Australia, I'd, I'd say Miron. Uh, Miron was was very funny. A couple of quick stories. You remember you used to come out with, uh, I have a new system I am playing this week, uh, wine glass midfield, banana-shaped defence. And you... <laughs> Um, and another one I remember, we they played at the Mariners, I think it was season two, and they, they'd drawn the game and they'd actually gone top of the A-League and all the press guys, I think you might have been there, Gatti, all the press guys filed in and I was at the press conference as well and uh, Miron walked in and we all went to sit down and Miron said, no, 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 before you all sit down, answer me one question. What? 
who is top of the league? <laughs> Queensland Rod. Thank you very much. You must all, you must all sit down. So he, he was he was a great character. I think in my days in the UK, uh, I'd, I worked with some really interesting guys. Chris Kamara was very funny. Um, I worked with him at the BBC. There's a red card, Simon. Yeah, yes. <laughs> is there? <laughs> I didn't see. Everyone's that. seen that clip, haven't they? Yeah. Good. Yeah, it's a very funny clip. Um, but yeah. uh, uh, Chris told me the story once of when he was manager at uh, Stoke. And he tried to sign a player in the board at, at blocked it because they didn't have the money. Um, so Chris decided in a, fic, a fit of pique that he was going to resign. Um, this was the days before you know mobile phones and instant messaging. So uh, he decided that he was going to type out this letter and fax it to his lawyer um, to get the okay. And this was late at night at the at Stokes Ground, the Britannia Stadium. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, he faxed his lawyer the letter and waited for 10, 15 minutes and then phoned the lawyer up and said, what do you think of the letter? And the lawyer said, I didn't get it. He said, but I've, I've faxed it to you. Check the number. So he checked the number and there was a digit difference. So he's like, where the hell have I sent the, the fax to? So he thought he might have sent it internally. So at 11 o'clock at night at Stokes Ground, there's no floodlights and there's nobody in the stadium. He broke into all the places in the stadium that had a fax machine because he thought he'd sent it internally. And, of course, he didn't want the chairman to find out. Anyway, he broke down all these doors, never found the fax, and the next morning he got a phone call from the chief executive at the Football Association saying, Chris, thanks very much for sending us the fax with your resignation, but I don't think you should send it to us. <laughs> so he, he, was a, he was a great character. Bobby Gould was another one. Um, again, very quick story. They played – he was manager of West Brom. They played Birmingham. They lost 4-0. As they're walking off at the end of the game, uh, Bobby Gould's getting pelters from the West Brom fans. So he literally went into the terrace and said, you and you, come with me. And he took two fans down the tunnel into the dressing room, opened the door and said to his players, there you go, you fucking explain it. And slammed the door and walked out. Brilliant. So we've done, the, we've done our favourite characters. Let's talk stories because we're all in the storytelling okay. business here. I'll start with something a bit different. What's the weirdest story you've covered, Gaddy, in football? <laughs> You're getting all the curveballs there, Gaddy. No, they're getting it too. They're getting it too. Yeah. Weirdest story. Jeez, you've got me Give again. me unique. Oh, you know, God. Weirdest story. I know there's an encyclopedia of your stories about this big, but. Uh, no, weird story. It's probably the, the craziest the craziest story. Um, World Cup qualifier in Adelaide. Socceroos, mid-80s, um, the Cosmina and um, Arnie and all those blokes. And after the game, they beat Taiwan 8-0. And um, they used to let the journos go out with them. We go found a bar in, in Adelaide, um, big Robbie Dunn. I don't know if anyone remembers Robbie Dunn, six foot seven and you know, built like a brick shit house. Anyway, we're, we're there sitting around having a yak and all of a sudden Robbie's got in, into an argument with this big, fat Greek guy and it was getting pretty serious. So me being you know, like this, said, come on, mate. I said to the Greek guy, Robbie's black belt karate. And he was, black belt karate. He said, yeah, we'll make Miss Moody here. Anyway, the guy quietened down. I, I, I turned around two minutes later, felt this on the back of my neck, grabbed my shirt. And he said, we're out, we're out of here. It was Robbie Dunn. My legs weren't even touching the ground. And he's dragging me out and Arnie's running. Uh, Cosmina's running. And, and we're heading out the, out the door of the bar. 
he's let me down, never bolted halfway down the street, and I'm, I'm a mile behind him, finally catch up with him. So, what was all that about? And Robbie said, the guy pulled a gun on me. <laughs> so I said, well, okay, that's enough. This is about six in the morning. Someone's coming, you know, coming up and said, I'm going back to the hotel room. But uh, that's probably one of the weirdest, craziest stories. But in those days, you wouldn't write it. You know, they trusted you enough to go out with them. What happened out, out there was, you know, Sacrosanct, you, you just don't report it. So, could have been a great, I could have had a front page story, but you let it ride. And just, and just for the younger ones here, how did you file that night? Was it with the, sorry, like, was it with a typewriter? Oh, on the phone. No, dictate straight. <laughs> was it a pigeon? <laughs> yeah. Was it? Was it, was it carved onto a tablet? Yeah, no, no. <laughs> with a, like, oh, a, like that, you know, and then written like that. minutes in yeah. and Paul Gaddy's yeah, getting yeah, yeah, ready. Yeah. It was 20 paragraphs up top of the head, <laughs> right on deadline, as usual. Not a word out of place either. Well, as a man who was was in radio um, to start, was that how you started? Yep, radio. Yep. Mazza, what's the what was the weirdest story you've encountered in football? Um, well, Clive Palmer sort of springs to mind. <laughs> what went on there? <clears throat> what, what an amazing couple of years that was. Um, I remember going to meetings with Clive Palmer, and this is when I was in my um, Fox Sports role, and you'd have to address owners or CEOs, and Clive regularly fell asleep in meetings, right? <laughs> but not only did he fall asleep, he snored. <laughs> so you, I'd be talking to CEOs saying, so, right, Fox, this is what our plans are for this year. And at the back of the room, you'd hear this. <laughs> and someone would go, Clive, wake up. Um, and he, he apparently often fell asleep while he was driving too. So there was a lot of Clive Palmer stories in the whole football Australia. I mean, how bizarre yeah. was that? Yeah. What well, just strange. strange times. Um, so, yeah, Clive, but it's funny you should say um, that we're telling stories because when I left um, Fox Sports, I thought to myself that Bonnie ran me up and said, you should write a book. And I was like, I- I've always wanted to write a book about all the great little stories you hear around the A-League. Um, and I never must admit got round to doing it, but there was some cracking stories. And if, if football um, was in, you know, held in higher esteem in Australia and people were doing after-dinner circuits, some of the stories that could be told about the A-League, and particularly in the early days when these people, you know, weren't household names. And, I mean, I remember one great story, and and Simon obviously knows it, was um, involving Luke Bratton when he was very, very young in his days at the um, uh, Queensland Raw, or might have been Brisbane Raw by then. Anyway, Frank Farina was coaching the team and Craig Moore was playing. And they used to train really early in the morning. They used to train at, I think it was like half past seven or something like that. And anyway, um, Frank turns up to training and Craig Moore comes running across from the other side of the ground and says, coach, you're not going to believe it. He's gone, what? He's gone, what, Craig? He's gone, you're not going to believe what's happened. He's gone, what? He's gone, it's Bratz. He's gone, what's Bratz done? He's gone, I, I can't tell you, but I'll have to get him over here to show you. So he goes, Bratz, come over here. Frank's Frank says, Bratz, what have you done? Moore, he goes, lift your shirt, Bratz. He lifts his shirt. He's got this big red mark there on the middle of his shirt, the middle of his chest. He's got a big red mark. He's going, what did you do? He said, I was running late for training. I put my shirt on and realised I hadn't ironed it, so I tried to iron it while it was on. (laughs) (laughs) And burnt himself. Like, had a burn mark in the middle of his chest. You can imagine how that would have gone down in a football dressing room. So there's there's all these sorts of stories. There was... um, just quickly, I think it was was it Daniel, the Brazilian player that went to oh, yes, Wellington. Wellington, yeah. And uh, at the time, the owner of Wellington Phoenix was Terry Serapisos, mm-hmm. and he had a fiftieth birthday black tie. 
Anyway, Daniel didn't read the invitation correctly and he thought it was fancy dress. So at the black tie Terry Serapisos 50th birthday, he turned up in a Borat mankini. <laughs> and he looks like him too. And and apparently was like people were like, you can't stay, you've got to go and get changed. He was like, nah, I'm staying. And so everyone is in black tie and old Daniel, and I think he lasted about two or three months after that. And um and then slightly got the nudge and was out of there. So there's all those sort of stories around the A-League, which is great, but they just don't get told a lot, obviously, because of the profile of the game. We, we probably, like, you know, Seinfeld was ahead of its times in the sense that it could have done an A-League version, you yeah. reckon. Yeah. Oh, there's so many. There, was, there is literally that many of those stories that are floating around the A-League, which is why, as I said at the time, and maybe one of these days I will, we'll put them all together in a book. Well, they're too great. And we worked with a few commentators that could add, not just commentators, co-commentators. Co Simon did a few of the stories in his book, but the amount of stories we could tell you about maybe Mrs. Slater, Bosnich. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, at butchering the English language. Remember, we're on the yeah. live stream here. No, 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 I'm not, say, I'm not saying anything uh, yeah. detrimental. Yeah, no. it's more things that actually you've written in your book, if yes, I remember. Yes, true, true. The Chatham House rules, Bonnie, they can apply now for, for, for tomorrow. No, they're applying tomorrow, aren't they? I think it's more whether there's a lawyer in the house. Yeah. Um, Two great stories there. Simon, can you can you top that with a, a weirdest story of your own? Um, <clears throat> it's it's not a funny story necessarily. In fact, it, it was certainly the scariest story I've ever been involved in. I did recount this in my book. And Murray was, I don't think you were actually there on the day with us, but you were in Brazil for the World Cup in 2014. And I was in uh, Rio. I think you were in Vitoria, weren't you, with yeah. the Socceroos? Yeah. So as one of our shoots on this uh, day in Rio, we were uh, we decided we were going to go with the Green and Gold Army to go on one of the tours of the favelas in, in Rossinha. So I'd, I'd been on one of them before many years ago and, you know, hadn't had any problems at all. So we went up and everybody was jovial and we had Tim Moran there who was shooting with the camera and um, we did a few shots and I did a couple of setup shots and then uh, we got to this beauty, beautiful lookout point uh, at the top of this uh, favela, which looked right down the valley into the city of Rio de Janeiro, it's beautiful views where everybody went to take, you know, their their snaps. Uh, and all of a sudden, we heard this like, you know, gunfire, and it was clearly sort of halfway down the hill. So a few of us sort of, you know, lent over. What's going on down there? And the next thing, this uh, Brazilian lady who lived there sort of lent out of her, her window and said in Portuguese, "You've better." take cover, you better get down. So, of course, we were like, oh, <laughs> this is exciting. Wow. So, you know, we all we all crouched down in the, at the top of this this place and I actually I did a piece of camera going, you know, well, here we are. It's almost like David Attenborough, you know. Here we are amongst the undergrowth. And, <laughs> you know, there's a bit, of a, a bit of a commotion over there. So we've been told to – and we were in fairly good spirits. And anyway, after a couple of minutes, the shooting stopped and uh, we got up and we carried on our merry way. Unfortunately – what we didn't know is that we wandered down this alley right into the middle of of the gun battle, um, at which point we were surrounded by uh, the Brazilian, I presume, SWAT police team, all very heavily armed, very heavily twitchy and very suspicious of what we were doing right in the middle of it. And we were literally told, stand against the wall. We had to lift our tops, even the women. Lift your tops because they wanted to know whether we were armed or not. So we were literally all stood there going, fuck. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, and after that, they, they uh, herded us into a, a cake shop, I think it was, and literally kept us there at gunpoint for 20 minutes. Um, and I said to the guide, they, what is going on? Are they keeping us here for our protection? And he said, he went and had a word with one of the policemen and said, apparently it's as much for their protection as ours because the, the drug gang that they were fighting against, uh, if they shoot tourists, they get longer prison sentences than they do the police. <laughs> so we were human shields basically for 20 minutes. Um, so th it was a very hairy story. And um, look, I don't know how much danger we were in, but it felt like a fair bit at the time. Um, the good thing from a journalistic point of view was that one of, <laughs> typically Australian, one of the Green and Gold Army, we were told to drop everything. So our cameraman, of course, dutifully put his camera down on the ground and we were all, one of the Green and Gold Army had a little GoPro and he kept filming. So <laughs> we got his pictures of all this. So we made this very fantastic story uh, with, with, you know, these pictures of the SWAT team running past us and barking orders at us and, uh, yeah, I, I seem to remember it sort of caused a, a little bit of a splashback here at the time. So that, that was certainly the most interesting, fascinating, scariest story I'd, I've ever been involved in. And, uh, yeah, fortunately, lived to tell the tale. Wow. Well, we've gone from the weird. I think it's time <laughs> we go to the wonderful. Um, what's your favourite story, Gaddy, ever? You're most proud of? What's the, the story you've covered you, you're most proud of? You you know, will it be a front page ball? I know you've had many yeah. in your time, but what, what's the one story you've, you've covered that you're the most proud of? Um, easy. The Alan Stadgis story. I managed to get that on the front page of The Australian um, with the help of a few people, Alan in, in particular, because I had to really work hard for him on him to to give me the story about, you know, because he was going to have, have a press conference uh, the next day. So, um, yeah, and he, he, he was, he was great. Um, you know, this was obviously when he was, when he was sacked and what, what was happening there. And, um, but I had to convince him to be in a photo and he didn't want to be in a photo. And I said, well, if you're not going to be in a photo, this is not going to be in the front page. And he said, let me think about it. And he rang me back and he said, for you, I'll do that. I'll be in the photo. And that won me a fair bit of plaudits from from the bosses there because they they wanted that story, you know, come hell or high water. And um, it was on the front page, and the next day it all just it just all 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 blew up. He had his press conference, and it was probably the, one of the biggest press conferences I've seen for a, a long, long time. And um, yeah, I think I'm, that's the one I'm most proud of. I think is Alan still here? No, no, he's no. Oh, he's gone. But yeah, you can thank him. Yeah, yeah. I've thanked him a thousand times, but he's he's actually thanked me more because it really he he, he believes that that helped him a lot, and um, and my support of him over, over the the way he was sacked, disgraceful, or how whatever happened, still don't know the full answers. But a couple of months down the track, I got a lovely text message from Brenda Stadgett, his wife, who really suffered during all of that. I thought they were all Um <laughs> Oh, thank you. <laughs> Perfect timing. Do you want a coffee or a bomb roll? You can spot the classy gentleman on the table here, can't you? <laughs> it's called class. Let's do shots. Class. But, yeah, so, yeah, sorry, a few months down the track, Brenda, Brenda texted me because she, she'd really done a tough and she said, you kept me sane with all the stories of writing about Alan and, you know, trying to get the truth out, out there, so. That's probably the proudest story of them. And it's obviously quite recent. So what 
really sets it apart from the others in that sense. Obviously, is it like in terms of, you know, a lot has happened in Australian yeah, football. Yeah. but Because well, it was pushing the pushing the boundaries of the story because there's more to it and we and we no one knew what the back story was and we were trying to hammer it and people other papers and media were following in and trying to find out what actually happened why he got sacked and we still don't know to this day why he got sacked it's still you know hidden somewhere in the ffa there maybe david gallup could tell us one day really but um yeah no and that story ran like that whole story ran for about two weeks, I think, two, three weeks, and and I kept pushing the boundaries and, and leading it and leading it and leading it. Gaddy can come off a pretty long run here now he's retired, so we're going to dig into this deeper. What did the FFA say to you? Um, not much. They weren't happy. But they've never been happy with me anyway most ah. of the time. All, all through the years, um, football, um, soccer Australia days, uh, Australian Soccer Federation days, yeah. I was always on their case. But that's, because that's, they, that's they, what any good journalist does, though. It is. It is. Um, and, you know, with, with good reason, too, because the way the game's been handled over the years, administratively, has been been shocking. One step forward, five steps back all the time. 47 years of it. I've seen it. And it happened, you know, even before my time. It's just, it's just a, a rolling message. Have a sip of that wine. Save those rants, okay? Save them because we're going to get back to that. Buzz, your favourite, most story you're most proudest of during your time working. Oh uh, well, I mean, I did, I wasn't in the business of breaking stories for 15 years at Fox Sports. But working on it. Yeah. yeah, no, no, no. I, I which was, I, I look back on 14 years at Fox Sports, and the one thing I'm most proud of. Well, actually, I'll say my favourite night working at Fox Sports um, in the football coverage was an FFA Cup game, um, Heidelberg versus Melbourne City at it's Olympic Park, isn't it? Olympic Park. Olympic Village. Olympic Village, yeah. <laughs> Ten to 12,000 people in the crowd. Um, uh, just an incredible atmosphere. Um, if I remember, Heidelberg had signed a Greek, former Greek international, mm. so they were pumped. Obviously, the game didn't go their way, but you just thought to yourself, well, this is what it could be. And I suppose that's what we talk about now with trying to um, link the pyramid, um, whereby, you know, that was obviously an NPL team playing up against a, an A-League team. The atmosphere was incredible. And you just thought, this, you know, this shows what the game, the potential that the game could reach. And, and also... I mean, the FFA Cup, I think, is one of the great things that um, the game has done over the last few years. It's been a fantastic competition, once again, for trying to, um, to just get everyone involved from um, uh, grassroots clubs all the way up to the A-League. So watching that sort of develop, watching the FFA Cup develop and being there that night is one memory that I'll, um, I'll always cherish from Fox Sports Days. Can I just say, Murray's yeah. also being very modest here because um, he was heavily involved in that FFA Cup coverage in terms of its construction and particularly in the early rounds. And I'm sure you'll watch the FFA, FFA Cup coverage. And when a goal goes in, you hear the bell go and it's, you know, it's a goal and we had to cross mm. from one to another. And people love that coverage. All those ideas were Murray's and a lot of the innovations of Fox Sports down the years. Wait, and he I doesn't mean, get credit yeah. for so it. So when the FFA not not so was, uh, it's real football, wasn't it? It's real football. My, yeah. exactly my right. endearing yeah. memory of the FFA Cup is I have a great friend, the late Mike Cockrell, yeah. Tasmania. Yeah. Bitterly cold, yeah. windy, wet night, and he's got a smile on his face and he's giving a summary of, of the game. Yeah. You can just see the joy in his face and that, that – 
that's why that's real football. That's yeah. what yeah. the FFA Cup's He'd about. ring me every, every every time. Can I go to Tassie? Can I go to Tassie? He <laughs> wanted to be there because he obviously he loved that competition, as did we all. Um, we all loved that competition. You did trips. You went to the Darwin yeah. and all yeah. those sort of places. So, um, but the whole idea, I mean, I remember sitting down with the um, FFA when the original idea of the FFA Cup came up, and I said, look, no one wants to watch again two A-League teams playing. The, 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 the success of the FFA Cup is going to be, hoping, watching and hoping that the NPL team can beat the A-League team. And that's what it was always about. And if people used to ring up and say, how come you're not showing Melbourne Victory versus Adelaide this week, this week, but instead you're showing, you know, Heidelberg versus Melbourne City? And it's like, because that's what this competition needs to be about. Absolutely. And if it's going to grow, that's what this competition has to be about. I mean, the FA Cup in England's got a – I mean, not that the – Big clubs don't take it seriously anymore, but there's still the interest and the and the and I guess the the people that are most keen on it are the lower league clubs, hoping that they can create that update, make a create that upset, make a bit of a payday for themselves, and and that's 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 what the cup has become. Well, the, you know, the great thing for us as commentators and broadcasters as well is that. Okay, your A-League games are great, uh, but Central Co- with a salary cap league and a close competition, Central Coast Mariners beating Melbourne victory. Well, maybe these days, I don't know. But normally, the Mariners beat in victory. That's not really a story. But Apia Leichhardt beating Melbourne victory, that's a story. And it was a big story when it happened. Mm. And that's it gives you those narratives that we don't necessarily have week in, week out in the A-League. And it was, that's why I love it as well. It's my favourite time. And the other thing, I'll just take out and Seeing the Mariners losing the FFA Cup wasn't fun. Yeah. <laughs> the, the other <laughs> Being thing, a Mariners fan. The other thing at the time was there was only 10 A-League teams. So um, you'd be what you'd at 27 round comp, you'd see Central Coast play Melbourne victory yeah. three times every year. Mm. You then threw it in for a fourth time in the FFA Cup. It was a bit like, oh, yeah, come on. So, which is why the FFA Cup really was all about the NPL teams, and that was just the success of it. And that should still be the focus. And people, and I know Gaddy was one, people used to criticize us that the drig was the, the um, draw was rigged because we always got the um, NPL team through to the semi-finals, which is fair enough. I get that. But the whole reason for doing that was to create an interest mm. in the fact that, that this might be the year that an NPL team makes it through the ground. Yeah, final. I could understand it yeah. initially, but later on it just has to become a proper competition, again, a proper cup competition. Again, my point being, though, that people don't want to watch Melbourne Victory play Adelaide for a fourth time that, that's, that season. That's... It all, it, it, it's almost, um, you know, it's almost too much. Yeah, but it might yeah. still happen anyway. Yeah, yeah, Adelaide, absolutely. Adelaide played Sydney yeah, no, no, absolutely. Four what, times. two or yeah, three yeah. times. Yeah. So we're trying to create a chance yeah. that it doesn't, yeah. Sorry about that. No, very good. We'll, we'll, just talk, we'll talk amongst ourselves. Very good. <laughs> and just the, the FFA Cup was that was that David Callop's idea solely, or oh, I think it might have even pre-David. Yeah, I mean, it was was on the it was on. <laughs> I was the, I was trying to be Jeff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was on the drawing board for a long time. It was just, a, it, of course, how it was going to roll out. And it just took someone actually to um, press the button to make it happen. But there was a lot of discussions that went on prior to it kicking off about different ways that it was going to work, et cetera, et cetera. Jimmy, you want to finish off the favourites? What's your uh, favourite football story um, you're most proud of? Dude, uh, can I have two? Yeah. If I can be greedy. Yeah. Um, my first one was when I was working in the UK back in 1993, I was working local radio and uh, BBC Radio Lancashire, and I managed to break the story that uh, Roy Keane was signing for Manchester United, which was massive at the time. <clears throat> and I, I got it due to a, 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 an old friend of mine. I can't even remember his name, which is terrible, given he gave me such a big story. Close friend, clearly. Yeah, clearly yeah. not in touch with him anymore. <laughs> yeah. um, I think he was a journalistic colleague from, from down in London. I think it's, actually his name was – I know he was from Venezuela. 
bizarrely enough. Anyway, he he told me that he'd spoken to some. He'd been in Ireland for some reason, and he'd he'd spoken to a guy who was Roy Keane's best mate. And Keane had literally been home back in Ireland for about four or five days because he had a lot of it. He was playing for Nottingham Forest in those days. And he had a lot of interest from a lot of big clubs, but he was about to sign for Blackburn Rovers, who are who were the local club that I covered at the time. The fee had been agreed. Everybody, the papers had written it. It was basically a done deal. He was just you know, about to arrive on the Monday or the Tuesday to, to sign the contract. Anyway, apparently Keane had let slip to this mate of his that he was actually going to sign for Manchester United. So this contact of mine told me that. I told my boss and he said, should we run with it? <sighs> yeah, let's do it. So we went live with it and, of course, all hell broke loose. We had national newspapers calling us and Blackburn Rovers were furious because they didn't know. They thought we were bullshitting. So they they sort of ostracised us for a couple of days and whilst Roy Keane sort of laid low and, of course, lo and behold, I think by, by the Thursday, he signed for Manchester United. So I was, I was pretty proud of that one. Um, the second one was uh, the breaking of the uh, Melbourne Heart buyout uh, of, by the City Football Group, which wasn't exclusively mine. It was myself and Tom Smithies, um, who uh, Simon Pearce will be here tomorrow, um, speaking on the A-League reboots, uh, gave us that story in confidence and... Uh, we broke it. They, we knew that they were flying in Ferran Soriano, Tiki Bagiristan, and Brian Marwood to do interviews. So we did, we did interviews the night before it was it, it was uh, broken. We weren't allowed to. We had it on embargo, I think, till ten o'clock the next morning. So I had the story written for the website, had the package done for Fox Sports News, and everything was ready to go. But we weren't allowed to do it until ten o'clock the next morning because that's when they were going in to tell the FFA because the FFA didn't know either oh, <laughs> that they were about to buy the club. So that night, of course, um, you know, you're looking at all the forums. And I was—I swore that you were going to get it. I had a, I, I had a feeling that you were going to get that story. Um, and you're looking at all the, you know, Twitter and Facebook and everything, thinking somebody's got to get this because stories don't stay quiet for that long normally. And nobody did. So at 10 o'clock, we went live on Fox Sports News the next morning and, and broke. And Tom Smithies did as well in the, in the Telegraph as well at the same time. So... Yeah, I was pretty proud of that one. Did you have to put a disclaimer that you're a Manchester City fan? Like, did that cross your mind though? Like, thinking that uh, was there? But when you did it though, was it was it a bit? You know, this is Manchester City. This is my club. Like, was it a bit? Well, what was it like? Yeah, but it's a difficult one. I mean, yes, the City Football Group they own Manchester City, and that is my club. But Manchester City is my team. Melbourne City is not my team. Melbourne Heart wasn't my team. Um, I. You know, it's. I think that's a different question entirely. It's, it's a very difficult one. All that because people sort of naturally assume, oh well, it's Melbourne City, Manchester City. They're all the same. Well, they're not. You know, I didn't grow up supporting Melbourne City. I have no uh, emotional feelings towards them whatsoever, good, bad, or indifference. I don't wish them ill, but I'm not a supporter of that club just because the City Football Group owns them. You know, my lineage of Manchester City goes back a, a way before the City Football Group got involved. So. Yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't particularly worry about that. I mean, the, the fact I got the story was probably due to the fact that I was a Manchester City fan. I don't know. Maybe they felt they could trust me. <laughs> I'm not sure they do now. To be fair, Simon will probably confirm tomorrow. But um, yeah, all right. Well, we'll continue on to break. We'll continue on the F of favourites. Um, coacher, sorry, coacher, merged coach and player into one word. But a coach or a player, um, your favourite coach or player to interview. 
I like John Cosmina as a as a player. Just because, got, not because of the barbecues. No, no. Tell, oh, tell no, people no. about the barbecues. No, nothing to do with the barbecues. Got, I got to know John when he was playing Sydney, Sydney um, City, in the old, early in the NSL. Um, a real, real character. A hard nut. You know, if you got on the wrong side of him, you you were gone. There's no no forgiveness. So I sort of became mates with him. But he, and he was always good for a quote. He's always Good for a story. So in the old days, he used to be allowed into the dressing rooms after the game. You could talk to anyone you wanted. I, he was my go-to man. I'd go to Cozzy and he'd always come up with something, something stupid or something contra, controversial. And um, yeah, he's uh, a great thinker of the game too. And a good, he was a good coach. He's a good coach. So we had a, a good friendship. And um, I, I like Cozzy a lot. He was from the hard school. We've all dealt with Cosy, you know. We've, we've all had our issues. Yeah, yeah. He's great analyst. He's got a great, yeah. great football brain. I love listening to him. So we should make more use of him. But uh, he's probably one of the favourites that I've you know, interviewed over the years. And it's interesting you talk about, you know, being at the access you got. We'll talk about more about relationship with media and how it's changed over your careers. Yeah. But can you... Why don't you talk about the barbecues quickly about Cosy's barbecues because they're quite an infamous tale and probably did lead to the demise of his coaching career in a sense at one Sydney club in particular being Sydney FC. Oh, so I thought you were talking about his coach uh, barbecues that he used to have at Adelaide United when they used, they used to do lobster for the media on a Friday afternoon. Yeah, because um, who was the guy that uh, Nick Bianco? Nick Bianco, I think it was. Yeah. Um, uh, used to <laughs> used to give the club two lobsters to cook up for the media every Friday. And, of course, the media being what they are, uh, used to turn up in droves every Friday to these Adelaide United <laughs> training sessions to eat the lobster. And all of a sudden, Adelaide United would get a lot of coverage in the papers and the newspapers is, the next day. Because this is great. Because, like, if this if Twitter was around 15 years ago, these mm. would be, like, great stories, mm. you know, mm. great content. But didn't yeah. Cozzy do the barbecues when at he was Sydney at Sydney FC, FC as well? Yeah. But the players would eat it the day before the game as well. Wasn't that... The media would also, would the players join in or was it just? On a Friday, yeah. They would have a barbecue on a Friday. With the players. Get, well. let's, yeah, let's, the players let's sat down. Go to Phil. Phil knows. You were there. Phil, tell us. <laughs> and media, you got to mix yeah. with the players. Yeah. Yeah. Any coaches here today, does that qualify for sports sports science requirements? <laughs> a few snags. That's Mitch. Ask Mitch. <laughs> um, but just enough about barbecues. But... Um, Talk about your favourite character you've, you've dealt with in football. What's the interview? Huh. Um, oh, well, as we, I mean, we spoke to fake about Miron, of course. Um, I'll go to Simon and I'll think. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> yeah, because you were thinking the same, weren't you? You're like, I'm just happy answers. This, uh, I've so. got, again, I've got a couple. Uh, one from my time in the UK, and it's, it's, more, it's less about sort of getting stories. I think, you know, when you talk about favourite coaches, it's about your relationships with the coaches, which obviously helps your job as well. Um, I was lucky for a year in the UK. I covered the, the English Championship. And at the time, I covered Watford a fair bit. And their coach at the time was Gianluca Vialli. And Gianluca Vialli, uh, like me, was a smoker. I'm not sure he is anymore. Um, and after we'd done the interview, he'd, he'd always say to me, you have cigarette for me? You have cigarette? And we would go down the side of the, of the ground at Vicarage Road and surreptitiously smoke. And I remember sat, stood there and we would be shooting the breeze and thinking, I'm having a smoke with Gianluca Vialli. Mm. I watched this guy in the World Cup. <laughs> so that, that was like a, a bit of a hero moment for me, but I, I really liked him because he was, 
he was just very down to earth, basically. You know, he just wanted to have a smoke, and I was the guy who he knew smoked. So, um, so that was one uh, in Australia. I'd have to say Pim Verbeek because I had a very close relationship with Pim, um, who tragically is no longer with us. Um, again, Pim just one of, well, without question, the most down to earth, most genuine, humble, honest approachable guys I, I have met well he was he was the best ever um I've never had a, a relationship with a football coach or anybody in football like I had with Pim um why, why so why was he such a what, what made him stand out just his humanity he he he, I mean, he was very passionate about football, which which was great. And we'd always obviously talk about football, even when it wasn't a professional setting. But he had an interest in you as a human being. Um, he wanted to know about your family. He wanted to know how your job was going. He understood sometimes that you had to write things that he didn't necessarily like or say things that he didn't necessarily like. And he also accepted when he got things wrong. Um, sometimes that maybe didn't come across that much, but... You know, he knew when he'd made a mistake, but he was he was just a, a wonderful human being um, and had no, you know, a lot, a lot of people in football, they have little cliques around them. There are people that they trust and people that they don't. The, the only people that, apart from Hank Dutz, um, his assistant, the only people that Pim had around him was his family. Um, and he, he was just, uh, just a, a wonderful man. And uh, and I'm desperately, you know, sad that he's that he's no longer with us. And I, I did go to see him, you know, when he was sick a couple of years ago in, in in Amsterdam before he died. And obviously, you knew that he was in a bit of trouble. Um, but the fact that he still wanted to see you, you know, some random journalist from from Australia. And it wasn't just me. There'll be others who will tell exactly the same story. I know, for example, he, he stayed in touch with Jesse Fink mm. right until the end, and other journalists as well, and and sort of random people from around the football community. So it wasn't just high-profile players. He, he was just a friend to anybody you liked, which is the best human quality, I think. His daughter still live here. I met up with his daughter for drinks along with, with Jesse about two months ago. Yeah. yeah. And again, you know, built from exactly the same stuff as you would uh, imagine. Just just a really a lovely man and and a, a really lovely family. The, the best human being I've, I've ever met. And he lived here in Manly, didn't he? Yep. Yeah. Why don't we raise a glass to Pim? Yep. We've all got a drink yep. here. Well said, Simon, to Pim. He was a journalist's dream too, wasn't he? He was. He came up with it. Better to train three times in Europe than play in the A League <laughs> conference, and our eyes lit up, and then we had a, you know, we had a back page story straight away. Do you, do you remember the day? I think they played in China. I don't know whether you were there, Gatti. I think no, you were, Murray. Uh, they played in China, a World Cup qualifying, Kunming, and we all got sick because it was at altitude and uh, food wasn't that great. And yeah, that's yes, right. yeah. yes. And if, a few of the players got sick and Pim got sick at the press conference. He was halfway through a press conference and he literally sort of stumbled and had to steady himself uh, against the chair. And we were, ooh. And he sort of took a couple of minutes and he said, no, I'm okay. And then he sort of half smiled as he looked up at us and said, well, you got your story now. Mm. And he was right. Mm. Um, Muzz, have you had a chance to? 
If I look back on interviews that I've done, obviously Graham Arnold at the 2007 Asian Cup <laughs> after Australia played Iraq, that was uh, fairly memorable when he sort of said um, the players don't look like they want to be here. And then we put that to Mark Viduka, who was a little bit perplexed by the whole um, idea of that. Um, Arnie didn't so, speak to you for a while after that. No, no, Arnie <laughs> didn't speak to me for a while. Um, I'll tell you, the players I most enjoyed working with um, were the W League players um, and the Matildas because uh, they were always keen to help out in whatever way they could. Um, they would You'd never get a no from anyone. They sort of realised that, you know, it was important that they got coverage in the media, so they were always up for talking. So uh, obviously as the A-League sort of got to its height, players became prickly and coaches became prickly with the availability and accessibility of, of, um, of their players, but the W-League... Um, players were always up for doing absolutely anything. And that's what actually why I thoroughly enjoyed covering the W League when we were at Fox Sports too, because it was they, they just loved being part of it. All right. Well, we've covered Lisa Devane, especially. Lisa Devane, you roll them off, oh. all of them, you know, and Lana Kennedy's, they always up yeah. for a chat and, and generally They've give you something. Very honest, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's probably yeah. the fair. fair yeah. But they're, they're yeah. They, lo- they love the media, so it's great. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll move on to our next F, which is frustrating. And I know there's going to be. There's a lot of ways you can go with this one, Gary. But what's what is your sole frustration the most that's frustrated you during your career covering football? How our game is not united has never been united. Um, I think it's um, divided, um, almost broken. I, I believe at the moment. Um, as I said, we we've just got too many. We've got too many factions. You know, Competing against each other, and we can never get together as a fa- as a community and as a family. And I've seen that over the forty seven years. It's just, you know, I don't know whether one day we'll we'll, we'll get there. I I I doubt it. Um, I really do. I hate to be negative about it, but yeah, we take as I said, one step forward, three steps back, and we're seeing that at the moment. Yeah, we've had the highs of World Cup qualification. Now now we've got issues with the A League again, and you know. The, the most frustrating part was the A-League in the first three or four seasons it was booming. It was absolutely fantastic. The crowds were great. The active support was great. And then because of one man's ego, forget the World Cup, the FFA took their eyes off the ball and the A-League suffered. And it's never recovered. I don't think it's ever recovered up after what, you know, Look, I can understand Frank Lowy having his having his dream, and you know this would have been, you know, you know his his ego. He he's, he wanted the World Cup for Australia. He wanted to produce something, and, and and good on him. But a lot of people could have told him from the start it was doomed. You know, if, if you know FIFA politics, it was doomed from the start. And yeah, as I say, and that that sort of happened all the way through the '74 World Cup, qualified for the World Cup, and everyone said, oh. Australian soccer is going to boom now. We've made the World Cup for the first time ever. Yeah, hallelujah, we'll be the number one sport. And what happened? A few years later, we're in all sorts of trouble. Yeah, bankrupt, I think. The old ASF under Sir Arthur George bankrupt. We went nowhere. We stagnated, failed to make the World Cup again until 2000, 2006. Uh, that's been the most frustrating part. And having to write the negative stuff about the game has always been terrible. Yeah. As a football fan, you want to you want to be positive. You want to say, yeah. look, Murray and I have had some differences over the years. Murray thinks that you know, my criticism of the game has been you know, too much and that we should 
always do the net positive stuff. Positive, you, you can't. As a journalist, you've got to write it as you see it. And that's how I always thought, yeah. Try and keep the bastards honest is, yeah, good old saying. And, yeah, that's the most frustrating part. We just, we can never seem to get it right. And when we do get it right, we stuff up. Why did you butt heads just just we didn't butt heads. Well, not figuratively. No, no, but no. But you're no, saying it's serious stuff. Yeah. Look, just on that, I mean, I keep correcting people. Everyone always says, oh, the game's stuffed. The game is not stuffed. 1.4 million people will still register to play the game next year. Kids don't have photos and posters of James Johnston on their wall. There's no problems with the game. There is problems at the upper level of the game, of course, which is what we're talking about. And kids kids don't, I mean, kids don't know what the FFA is. You know what I mean? They still turn up and play. We've had that grassroots for ages. That's what I'm saying. So the game is the only problem. The upper levels of the game. We're talking about semantics. I'm talking about the upper level. Is your frustration higher now because your standards are higher when back in the 90s, you know, most people looked at football as if there was, you know, bodies buried and, I mean, sorry, like bags yeah, no, of no, money, no. people being paid with chicken, like, you know, raffles and all these sorts of things. Is that yeah, why? Yeah, the standards, I, I, I want to be held to those standards. you think? Yeah, because we know we've, we've got something there. We've got something we can build on, but we're not taking advantage of it. Our administrators are stuffing up. They are. It's quite simple. We, we, haven't, we haven't got it right, you know. I hope James Johnson can... Can do the job, um, but he's got a hell of a job in front of him. Absolutely, hell of a job. I'd hate to be in his position because, yeah, they're for fading. Yeah, they're broke again. There's no, there's no money. You know, now they're not going to have the A League, so yeah, they've got no sponsors. Where's the money going to come from? Who's, yeah, how are they going to fund the game? And you know, they've got to look after all the junior national teams. The yeah, the Matildas, all the junior Matildas game. You know, it's just. It's ridiculous. Should we pick off that? I'm sure your F, your frustration is <laughs> going to be similar, but just build on what Gary was saying. But your 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 frustration. Yeah, I probably share a lot of those frustrations. Everyone does. Um, and I, I think Gary's right to a large degree. That's and I've been guilty of this as well. You know, that journalists, you ha- you do have to call it as you see it. And you know, Craig Foster said something earlier on today that there's. You know, a lot, a lot of the critics and provocateurs are no longer in the game. The, the game's not very good at, at having robust debates. It doesn't particularly like it. Um, and certainly the mainstream doesn't like it because it's just not interested. So that that's a major failure in the game. Um, look, I, I don't want to sort of add too much to what Gatti said because I do share, all, you know, pretty much everything that you've said. I think if, if I'm talking about my frustrations with the game in a more general sense at the moment... Um, I would definitely say VAR. Um, I think it's a disaster. I think it's an absolute disaster for the game of football. It doesn't fit our sport. People might disagree. I don't know. But is any raise of hands? But does anyone actually like VAR here? Taxi, no. yeah. George, please go and go into a go into a deep defence. <laughs> <laughs> When used correctly. When used correctly. No, so, no. so again, see, this is the point. I, I'm, uh, yeah, of course, people are entitled to their their view, but it, uh, the defence I hear of VAR, it's not, it's not VAR. It's how it's used. Mm. Well, how else are we going to use it? Well, Humans have to use it. Okay, Thierry Henry. 
Why didn't we have the AR then? Oh, spoken as an Irish woman. <laughs> but, but the thing is, okay, so Thierry Henry, yes. Now, okay, Diego Mar I could say he's an Englishman, Diego Maradona, but equally, in 1966, if we had VAR, Jeff Hurst never scores the goal against West Germany. So, swings and roundabouts. Then what would all the English have to matter. talk about? Well, exactly. <laughs> exactly. This is the whole point. Part of the game is about debate and about having a bit of a chinwag about it in the pub afterwards. But when we stop the game for three or four minutes, I don't want to pay money to look at a referee peering into a screen going, yeah, jog it back forward, go back a bit. No, let me have a look at a different angle. Please, can we do away with it? Just hand the responsibility back to the referees, accept that they're human, get on with the game. Football existed for 150 years without this thing, and now we're trying to reinvent it, re-referee the game, and then re-referee -re the game. Jurgen Klopp a few weeks ago, we need a review into the review system. Oh, please. Uh, you know, where does it stop? Are we still going to be going by Thursday lunchtime? So, no, we're, we're not quite sure whether you won 1-0 because we've got to check that penalty claim. Hey, Piss hey, off. Let's rob the emotion. Hang on, there might be a passionate defence there. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. <laughs> wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're talking to an EP here. It was a great chance to sell an advertising spot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Packers VAR every time it was well, it's the, um, I think it's the NFL where is it? That you've they've got to use it a certain number of times to get away a sponsorship. Yeah. Well, they well they do it in yeah. the, the NBA actually has timeout ads. Yeah, that's review right. Review ads, but Packers VAR. KFC, KFC pays big money for the NRL. Uh, yeah. Video ref, but, but, enough, but there are natural yeah. stop points in a game. Of you know, a try is scored, the game goes, the game goes dead. Sometimes that doesn't happen in football. I just think it disrupts the flight. I know as, people, as some people Spurs have a fan. different view. As, as a Spurs about, fan against Man City in the Champions League last we're, year, we're playing you tonight. I know that at four thirty tomorrow morning. Yeah. <laughs> it's all about emotion, isn't it? Good it's job, you, game good job you and I are speaking tonight, not tomorrow. <laughs> um, well, moving Hang on, on, Phil. Phil's got one. No, it's all right. Um, what I want to say is this that. I cannot accept the fact that there seems to be a perception that VAR is here to stay, so why bother arguing? No, I don't know about that. Why do we have to accept this, that it's here to stay? We don't. We, we don't. shouldn't have to. Right, there seems to be this idea that, listen, there's no point arguing about it because nobody's going to take it away. I do love how you, just quietly though, I do love how you and Gaddy originally called it VAR, not VAR. <laughs> <laughs> it did make me laugh a lot when Gaddy goes, I hate this bar thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why can't the officials and the administration around the world realise that it's causing so much damage to the game? It's not rocket science. Why do they persist? Mm. Why? Well, I'm watching Jacinta League at the moment. No, that's Marvin. He's listening to me. I wonder why you've got to be a all right, well, we're going to review those a bit later. Um, <laughs> just just your last frustration. Oh, um, no, no, I agree with a lot of what Gaddy said, actually. If you're, it's, a, it's a game with enormous potential, but we've been saying that for a long time. If everyone was actually on the same page, you, who can, you can only imagine where the game would go, but I guess the great frustration is that everyone isn't on the same page. Fair. fair Self-interest, as yeah, you know. There you go, self-interest. There you go, and self-interest, yeah. Gaddy, just... Um, I want to talk to you because obviously you guys have worked in the media for a long time. Just for the younger people, just talk to us about how relationships in football media have changed over time. So obviously, there's the evolution of social media. But from when you started, you obviously were in the change rooms, 
You know, yeah, you that's probably, a big thing. I don't know if you're, I don't know if you're faxing people or you know, no. I don't know how you would communicate. Pigeon, pigeons. pigeons. Yeah. Said. But just talk to us about how relationships have changed from when you started to when you finished your career. Yeah. And when was it at its best? I was at its best. I'll we'll start with that one. Junior the 80s when you're allowed to to go into the dressing rooms after the game. You interviewed the coach, and once you got rid of the coach, you went straight for a player. Um, that's where you got your stories. In the heat of the moment, the players are still boiling and they, you know, they tend to say things that they wouldn't say if they calm. But, you know, um, one example, Francis, he was talking about races and I remember I covered a game at um, Marconi against Sydney United and um, Sydney United coach, I won't name him, had run onto the field because one of his players had been injured. He was unhappy with the tackle and he said something to, um, to Francis. You know, after, I'd not, I sort of noticed something, but Francis wasn't happy anyway. I went in the dressing room and spoke to the coach and then Francis said, Gaddy, come here, come here. He said, I was racially abused on the field by a certain coach. I guess it was Sydney United coach. And he, he just let loose, he gave, him, gave him the story, said, you know, disgusting, whatever, blah, blah, blah. I, know the, I had a back page story the, the next day, so... You know, being in the dressing rooms and even on tour with the Socceroos, as I said, you're allowed to go on the team bus to training. They would take you back to the hotel. You're allowed to have coffee with them, stay in the same hotel. And you, you forge relationships, friendships. You've got really good stories. You've got to know know the players, you know, their family situations and, and all of that. Um, then, it, then it changed. I think it was... That was under Frank Arrock and Eddie Thompson and Les Seinfeld. They would bend over backwards and let you have access to players. And I think when Frank Farina took over, then you weren't allowed to stay in the same hotel. You weren't allowed to be on the on the bus or whatever. And and then they started with press conferences. You weren't allowed to go in the dressing room. So, you know, they used to bring a player out every now and then with the press conferences in the A-League. Mm. Not, a, not anymore. Yeah. It's just a coach now. What changed so, that, though? What changed? Was there something? Oh, was there a person who... No, it I don't know. It's just a t- sign of the time. So, and that's why I feel sorry for a lot of the younger ones going starting. You know, they, they can't forge those relationships with those players and and even the coaches. You know, Eddie Thompson was fantastic after a game. Come in, mate. Talk to whoever you want, and he'd talk to you one on one, give his views, and another journo come in, talk to him. It wasn't all in together, you know. So you weren't all getting the same same story. You might have a a question that you don't want. Another journal to know, yeah, because you've got an angle to write. To write, but nowadays, if you're in the press conference and you ask something really smart or whatever, and everyone's not onto it, they've got the same angle as you, yeah, and that's that's not what it's about, yeah. Journalists, you've got to have, think for yourself and, and get your own stories. But uh, that's where it's changed for me. And, and in terms of relationships, obviously, you know, you oversaw that whole period of Fox Sports with the A League. What changed in terms of to the end of the you know your you know the end of your tenure because there were some really high heights and it got towards the end. What what changed over that that time? You uh, think just quickly, I'm just interested to know. There's a couple of ex Socceroos legends in this room. How Mitch and Andy Burnell? How would you have gone with social media around mm-hmm. in your day? <laughs> 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 well, I said I spoke to you before. Sorry about it, but I, I'm against cameras in the dressing room. After the game or before the game, whatever, I think that's the same thing with the players. Yeah. After, 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 after
But as what Gary says, you're right, but what if you write a bad story about the manager's name? Then is he going to keep you biting the ring or whatever? So I, I think it's just evolution with the time. No, what's happened? When you talk about press conferences, after a, a World Cup game, you have the one channel, you know, players can come in, and you grab them, you talk to them, whatever that might be another way to do things, rather mm. than having a press conference, or you have that in the press conference. Mm. Andy, I don't give all those stories from your book. No, um, depends. Depends where we're at with social media. Like, I agree with Mitch on the press conferences after matches. I, I kind of played NSL here when Gaddy was around. As a player, I really loved those relationships that we had with that I had with Gaddy, with Mike Cockrell, with Johnny Conanos. You know, we play a match and end up at the cross at 4 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> not me, okay? Just Darren wasn't me. No, I'm definitely... he, was at, he was at the Marconi Club. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I'm buying your book, Bert. But on, on, on the Insta and the Facebook and stuff like that, from what I see, uh, was it recently one of the, the young lads uh, has packed it in because of abuse? Yeah, Josh Hub, yeah. Um, I think. How would you have been with constantly getting the reaction to how you're playing two minutes after you've got off the pitch? Yeah. Um, look, I've, when you play in England, uh, having played here, um, you're always under scrutiny as well. And, um, yeah, it, it's it, it's not the greatest. It's one of the kind of downsides of, of, of being a footballer. Um, you know, you'll get rated every weekend by mm. a local rag, by the Sun newspaper, by everybody, and um, it's a it's a hit to, to you as a human when mm. you get a poor rating, whatever it is. Um, but with the social media now, it's it's not only that; it's, it's verbal abuse. It's, it's it's the whole lot. You know, what do you do? You know, my instinct is a hit back, but you probably wouldn't be allowed mm. right, by your club, club yeah. to to you know go on a verbal tirade against people as well. You know, yeah. go out hunting. Yeah, um, but it's. Um, but even the fact that when you went out for a night after a game, yeah. knowing that people have got mobile phones and they're keeping an eye on you mm -hmm. and they can video you and they can stick it up on social media, et cetera, et cetera, it's a lot of pressure for a young, for an 18 year old football player. It's, it's, you, you, I won't go into it too much, but my time with Beckham, you know, at Madrid, and, yeah. uh, he was in a team of Galacticos, Ronaldo, Carlos, and Galano, um, you know, you'd go as far as removing wherever there was female company or journos or whatever you'd take uh, batteries out of phones so yeah. it couldn't be taped and videoed and then um it's it's there's a whole mad world out there yeah yeah and, um, oh, i feel i feel sorry for mm. players mm. well what's let's talk about and it. just on that I, I thought it was very interesting last week gaddy when um Greg Groudon, the great City Morning Herald rugby writer, passed away um, way too young, um, that a lot of the people that, um, you know, w w were passing on the condolences, particularly through the media, was a lot of players who just said yeah. what a great relationship they had with him as a journo. Yeah. And I, I don't reckon in the future of sports journalism, players are going to have that relationship with journos. They just won't. They'll have great relationships with their media managers, and is that, is but they'll that, never talk to journalists. You know no, what I mean? And is so, that is that wall just over time? As we're talking about, is that wall just being built up? Yeah, yeah, it is. Respect, it's respect yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah, you do the hard yards. 
you do the hard yards, you, you get that respect, and that's how you build a relationship. You know, relationship with Birch for me and, and, and Mitch, yep. you know, but great relationship with them, I think, because we'd, we'd build up a rapport and there's trust, trust there. Once you've got that trust from the, from the players, you, you're three quarters of the way of being, being half decent at the journal, mm. I think. And then you, sorry, sorry, no, go. Then you would give people like Gaddy great stories. Mm. Um, but if you said, Gaddy, this one's yeah. going nowhere, yeah. it went nowhere. Yeah. It went nowhere. You got, yeah. you got to respect your, yeah. your sources. Yeah. Just want to get back. Yeah, just, just back to what we're talking about. You know, both of you guys were at Fox Sports for that whole journey. What, what, what changed? Because obviously there was some very high highs and then it got towards the end. You know, people were saying, oh, the ratings now. What? Well, but, is it, but is it for yourself, though, you obviously got to talk to Getty, them. But Getty touched on that. I mean, the A-League was flying and then people took their eye off the ball because of the World Cup. And then the A-League was flying in 2015 and people took the – and but owners got excited and took their eye off – the FFA took their eye off the ball because they worried about the owners and the owners wanted control and that was the end of that. So you're right. I mean, it's peaks and troughs. And for you, Simon, like what – what did you notice that changed over that time in your in your career? But obviously coming from the UK, then you come here, you obviously get into the A-League, you know, you're calling all those games and there were so many high highs, but what changed for you? What what, what changed? Um, in terms of relationships with players and coaches, I, I probably have the opposite journey to what the other two guys have been on because obviously I started in the UK and I worked covering the Premier League where – you didn't really have relationships with players because there was a them and us and, yeah. you know, there was a very high barrier between you. You saw them at press conferences and on game day, but that was about it. You might have relationships with a couple of them, and I did, but it, it was hard to get that. And there was a, you know, there's a big gap between you and them. However, what I will say is that actually helped you as a journalist in some ways because I could smash a David Beckham if he had a poor game or somebody like that, David Beckham wasn't going to call me up the next morning and go, oi, you know, what about that rating? It just, it wouldn't happen. So when I came to Australia, I was um, very pleasantly surprised. And obviously it helped that I worked for Fox Sports, who were the broadcast right holders for, for a long, long time. And people knew my face, they knew my voice, they knew who I was. So I, I automatically had that sort of, in with players and coaches, which really helped in terms of building relationships. The flip side of that was the opposite to what I'd experienced in the Premier League. If I wanted to smash a Graham Arnold or a John Cosmina, and sometimes you had to because that's the job, then you would get the phone call the next morning Ask or the text was, message. Was it David Peacock? You know, what, 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 what have you written about me? This, so it's, it swings and roundabouts. The two places had both pluses and minuses because of the way the relationships were. Um, in terms of, you know, what changed for football at Fox, well, Murray sort of alluded to, you know, what happened with the game. There were peaks and troughs. I totally agree. I think the FFA and the clubs, but both equally to blame in many ways, they they took their eye off the ball at various points in the journey. Um, I don't always think the A-League has been as much of a priority as it should be, and the W-League. Um, I think that's our bread and butter. That's our, our Premier League, if you like. And look at the care and attention and money and scrutiny that is lavished on all those top-flight competitions over in Europe. We're half-hearted about our league here, both of them the A-League and the W-League. Um, and, you know, just on the W-League, we got, we got a Women's World Cup uh, here in, in three years' time, which is fantastic. And 
the question is starting to be asked about legacy and it's right about the legacy. We're talking about infrastructure facilities and are we going to get more girls and women playing the game? All fantastic points. I want to see more fans watching the W League and watching them on TV. The same with the A League because from that, I think everything else will flow on. If those two competitions are healthy, the whole game will be healthy because it's a trickle-down effect. Um, and look, one last point, not going to go into it too deeply, but certainly what changed at Fox is there was a, re a regime change three or four years ago, which you, certainly didn't help. Are you confident we can take advantage of that legacy? you confident we've got the people to do it? The evidence says Next we have question. The I don't the know. Over the I don't know. No, save it, save it. I don't know. So, it's, it would be unfair, Gatti, to say no because we're not there yet. Maybe. I hope so. Can I ask just you two one question? What's the best bake you've ever got from a commentator or oh. from a coach or from a player for something you've written or said? <laughs> yeah. What's the one where you've just gone, whoa? <laughs> whoa. Um, you would have, had a, you our, would have had a few. Our good mate, Nick Meredith. Oh, really? Go for yeah, um, it was a day before the A-League started and the PFA came up with a, a big thing about, you know, we've got to change the A-League and get rid of the teams and start a new game. I wrote a comment piece saying, no, nah, I, don't, I don't agree with that, blah, blah, blah. Came in the office the next day and picked up a message there. It's Nick Meredith. I thought you were a bloody effing decent bloke. You are nothing but a C. And I never want to, you know, if I have see you again, I'll, I'll smash you. You're, you're a disgrace. Bang. Like that. And um, I said, my God, because I, I got on well. I just get on well with Nick. I wrote some nice stories about him, decent player. And so we didn't talk for a few years, but gradually, he eventually apologised to me about four or five years ago. And now we sort of, Correspond on, yeah, on, were, on Twitter. You were pals today. I saw it. Yeah, Phyllis oh, <laughs> called me every every name under the sun. So that's probably what the biggest bike I've ever had. So, but, uh, well, I've had a few. Um, <laughs> had, a, had a couple from Cozzy back in the day. Yeah. Oof, one at half time. I think that you were producing. Yeah, A League yeah. finals game, and we we kept him waiting a bit too long for a half time interview once, and. Yeah, I, I won't repeat his words, but there was a lot of F's and C's in there. Um, trying to think some of the others. Ernie Merrick. I was going to say, my best one ever up. was from Ernie Merrick. Yeah, Ernie was. Merrick gave me a spray on the phone once yep. um, because I'd said that they had played without width during a game. So, he'd, again, I didn't get much of a word in. He just literally hammered me down the phone and then slammed the phone down. There was, there was a great one back in the UK, and I get, this wasn't actually my fault, but um, as Burnley manager called Jimmy Mullen, a, a Geordie guy. And uh, we we had on our, our preview show, and this, again, the days before Facebook and Twitter and everything, um, a guy called Leighton James, the older guys, already, Mitchell, remember Leighton James, Birchwell as well, uh, Welsh international winger. And he used to play for Burnley, and he was on our preview show every Friday. And because he played for Burnley, he was much more critical of Burnley than all the other teams that we covered. And this one Friday, I was out in the town having a couple of beers, so I didn't hear the show, but Leighton had, had apparently ripped into Burnley because they'd played five away games and lost five. And they conceded goals from set pieces and they couldn't score from set pieces. So set pieces were his, you know, his big beef. So he'd gone on air and smashed them. The next day I was at Bradford City calling them a, uh, the Burnley's game there. And of course they won 1-0 and they scored from a set piece. So I didn't know this. So I went down to the press conference afterwards thinking, well, Jimmy's going to be in a good mood. They got the first away win of the season. Uh, and I was, I was a little bit late for the press conference. As I walked in, he was already 
into his flow with all the full room of journalists. And he saw me and looked up and just said, and as for you, you Radio Lancashire, see you, you know the rest. I suppose you think that win today is down to Leighton effing James. And I just went, sorry? <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea, but I was, it was hugely embarrassing. So that, that, was a, that was a heck of a spray. I don't think he ever apologised for that either. No, Ernie. Yeah, yeah. Ernie rang me once, gave me absolutely. And Ernie, you would think, would be quite meek and mild, but um, at the time, this was early Melbourne victory. Ask Mike Lynch about that. Yeah, yeah. Lynchy, <laughs> Lynchy, and him still have a grudge. Um, but uh, yeah, he gave me both barrels on the phone, and then gave me both barrels the next time he saw me too. It was like, and I haven't finished. <laughs> it's like it was like a week ago we had that conversation. <laughs> so no, probably Ernie. This is all over I the can phone, I, but I'm gonna. So, no, can go, I have go. one more? Yeah. Just sprung to mind. You got plenty. Frank, yeah, yeah. Frank, <laughs> Frank He's got Arrock, more than one. This bloke. Frank Arrock, um coaching St George, and oh, they, they were terrible this day. And I said, something like, I would have been better off staying at home watching Laurel, Laurel and Hardy movies and watching this mob play. <laughs> the next, the next day, there was a St George happened to have a function at the St George Budapest Club, and I'm, I've walked in, and Andy Kotzka was the captain of St George. He's looked at me and said, "Don't go near Frank." Why? He said, He's not happy. Anyway, I walked in and Frank's grabbed me and he said, he gave me the round of the kitchen sink and he said, if we're Laurel and Hardy, then you're Abbott and Costello. <laughs> can you give a... And he, can just, you... he just, let, just let loose five minutes. So I just said, oh, okay, okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Can, can Did, didn't Robbie Slater once have a... Oh, they were, no. Didn't Robbie no Slater once... Costello? Sorry, go on. Yeah, Laurel and Hardy, yeah, good. So... <laughs> Didn't Robbie Slater once have a go at Mike Cockrell because he called him a lame shooter in one of his No, yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah, that was his, <laughs> one of his first ever articles on Robbie. He called him a lame shooter. He didn't let him forget about it for about 10 years. I was going to say, yeah. has anything ever turned physical? Because I know there's one story, a famous SBS story, involving <laughs> oh, Frank Farina, but um, is that the most infamous sort of physical violence as opposed or not I'll, violence, but in terms of a coach or a player yeah. lashing out at a... Yeah, I, I was never... Um, any physical thing. Although I think if Nick Meredith had been in front of me that day, he probably would have done something crazy, Nick. Must but, have uh, yeah. well, I, can no, say I, I mean, never, I was, I was there that um, night and dealt with sort of the aftermath of that because you we were the story all people. Who doesn't know the Andrew Orsardi story? Really, I think a lot of people would know the story. Can you tell it? Yeah, uh, well, basically you did. Yes, that's right. Okay. <laughs> so, the, so the story was that after a, a game, was it going to Iraq? Yeah, they won 2-1. Yeah. They didn't play particularly well when Frank was in charge. And Orsati was doing the interview for, for SBS in, in the tunnel afterwards. And to be fair, I thought he asked reasonable questions. People might disagree, but I thought he asked reasonable questions. And Frank clearly was irritated either by the performance or by Osati. I think they had a bit of history maybe as well and basically just gave one-word answers. You know, how do you think you played? Okay. Um, what would you change about the performance? Nothing. Um, it, it, was, it was that sort of staccato interview. And at the end of the interview, I think Osati, I don't know whether he did it deliberately or whether it was by accident, but he said, thanks, Graham as in Graham Arnold, who was his number two, which might have been the red rag to Frank Farina that was, you know, pushed him over the edge, I don't know. So the story was is that Frank actually grabbed Orsati by the throat and pushed him up against the wall. Uh, It was quickly broken up, um, but the bad blood went on for a long time. And I was – I'd been commentating the game. I had no idea that this had gone on. But we'd all gone in the same bus, the SBS bus – 
when they used to have a bus to take us from our time into the stadium. Glory days. Yeah, the glory days. And I remember we we went downstairs and there was a Channel 7 and a Channel 9 camera crew literally circling the bus. And I was like, I, I remember saying to Fuzzy, what the hell's going on here? What's, going, what's in the bus? I thought there might be a snake there or something. I don't know. Um, and and Fozzie obviously explained the story to me, but that that one that went on for about a week. And since you remember Bertie Mariani, do you remember Bertie, ex Marconi coach? He knew both Frank and Andrew because obviously the Italian community thing. And he actually came into SBS during the week to try and mediate between the two of them. <laughs> um, and then I think there was an official apology sort of given out. By Frank and Orsati officially apologized. Yeah, it was very weird. And that's play Indonesia three days later in Perth, and it was pretty tense, let me tell you. <laughs> when you were talking bizarre stories, was it Solomon Islands and a referee and a similar and the same chart? <laughs> yeah. I'd, well, yeah. We're on the live stream. So oh, that's true. Okay, that's really <laughs> so um, Bonita was going to rebut. Yeah, go on, Bonita. You were going to give the other side of that story. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it's all accurate then, is that what you're saying? Oh, that's the legend. These are the, these are those football stories. There you go. You know, that's the well. Legend. I have to say, I wasn't actually in the tunnel, so <laughs> I didn't see it. I didn't see any of it. That's what I was told. Yeah. Interesting. No, it doesn't. Come on, Benita, you've got the scoop. You've got to tell us now. Social media. I must say, social media being around in some of these early days of of Australian football would have been fantastic because all of our stories now are just more humorous at the fact of, you know, VAR failing, the sprinklers going off at a MacArthur game, whereas these mid-2000 stories are fantastic. But we've done a fair few Fs in, you know, frustration, favourites, but... I want to go to the last F, which is fix. Now, as journalists... What was as, fixed? No, <laughs> oh, right. Interesting. As in, you know, opinion is obviously, you know, part of journalism as well as reporting. What would, if you were put yourself in the shoes of, you know, the other side, what would be the number one thing you fix? I think I mentioned it before, is trying to unite unite everyone, make it one, one, one family. I think that's basic. Basically, it um, fix the grassroots in terms of getting them more involved in the game. Somehow, you know, um, we've never re- never taken advantage of that. As Murray pointed out, one point two million, you know, registration players. Um, if we can somehow get a whole of that and convert it into real you know, viewership, attendances, uh, interests, and you know. That, that could be a massive fix for, for the game, I think. That, yeah, I think that's probably the biggest one. I want a bigger A-League. I want a 16-team A-League that contains Tasmania, um, uh, contains Canberra, um, contains a second team in Brisbane. I want um, meaningful games because of, there's relegation and promotion. That's not all coming Straight away, I realise that that's going to take time, but that's the that's what we all want to see, don't we? Um, you know, bigger bigger A League, more games, second division, meaningful games, um, less watching the same teams play each other, as we talked about before. Um, 
Yeah, why restrict it? Let everyone in. Marketing, more marketing. Yeah, we, we more say, marketing. This is another F, but you know, obviously, we'll bring Fox here again. But what were your? <laughs> did you bring this stuff? Like, when, what were these conversations like? No, I mean, look, everyone thinks that oh, Fox runs the game. They don't. No. Like we used to say to the FFA, you guys run the game. We point cameras at the games and broadcast them. Mm. So they don't, and neither should they. They don't take a lot of, um, you know, counsel from what we think. The well, game should be run. That, and that should be that? the same with, you know, every sport. Mm. There's broadcasters and there's administrators. But, um, yeah, so, you know, that it's like the season draw. Everyone used to think we had a say in the season draw. We didn't. They did the season draw. And then they pretty much told us how it was going to play out. So as much as TV um, controls things like kickoff times, which we were talking about before when we were talking about W League games being played at 3 o'clock in the baking sun, in terms of actual schedules and things like that, that's mostly done by the FFA. And then um, ticked off by us. Go on, Getty. Face off. Yeah, the face, the face off. off. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. We can put our hands up for that. Um, and as I say to people, Getty, you can have 10 ideas, throw them up in the air, <laughs> and one of them will work, and that one didn't. Um, the whole idea was just trying to create a bit more atmosphere before the games, before the games kick off, and that didn't work. Can you tell people what that was? Because Oh, you that- remember, um, you, people might remember in the Sydney derbies and the Melbourne derbies that the teams lined up rather than fanned out and looking at the crowd, they lined up facing each other, um, which was just something that had been done in um, AFL games that we tried. And funnily enough, though, we we were happy it didn't work and Melbourne clubs wanted to keep it going and that was their idea. Mm, so, yeah, but a lot of people didn't like it, which was fair enough. Uh, and I want to do your thing. You've got to try, you was better try, than Star Wars you got to try round. things. You've got to try things. I want, <laughs> Star Wars <laughs> round was great, but go fix it because I'm going to get to an R word in a sec. So what was what would be your fix? Well, all of the stuff that we talked about really comes down to one thing, doesn't it? Money. Money. Yeah. Money. So if, if I had a magic wand tomorrow, we'd win Lotto or all of a sudden we'd have a magic money pot and all of those things would be fixed. Imagine, I mean, the NRL and, and the AFL and cricket, they all have billion-dollar TV deals. We've got a 32 million TV deal. Which is like, what, 11? So, you know, it's yeah. like 10 bucks to 1,000 bucks. If we had that money, imagine what all our competitions and our game could look like. But we don't have it, and that's the, that's the biggest problem. That's why we have all these issues. And, yes, there's a lot of self-interest. There's a lot of uh, structural faults. It can it could all be fixed if there was a lot more money to. I mean, everybody looks at the you know looks at the Premier League and says, "Oh, Premier League, wow, it's you know best." It doesn't always run particularly well. The Premier League run well. It runs well in spite of it because it's got so much money. It can't fail. It literally cannot fail. But we're seeing some of those failings, like not failings, but we're seeing. A lot of those core issues now starting to come out with obviously their idea of a super league and obviously Absolutely. the negativity ludicrous the since ever been with the league. Well, ridiculous, but because again that you know they've got the opposite problem to us. We don't have enough money, and they've actually got too much, and they think they can still get more. Um, and tragically, they're probably right. I mean, it's it, you know the Premier League has been the most recession-proof uh, sporting endeavor over the last twenty years. It's ridden out goodness knows how many global financial crises and. <laughs> Uh, goodness knows whatever else, and you know it's still going like that. It's it's remarkable, really, um, whether that can continue or not. I happen to think, and I hope as a as a football purist, and my club's involved in this as well, that the European Super League might just be one step too far for supporters, and they'll go, no, 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 enough. Mm. You can't do that because that will destroy competition. And strangely enough, effectively, what they want to do is introduce a closed shop, which is what we got here, oh, which is bizarre. <laughs> 
Simon, our game's always had issues about money, but there's money staring us in the face. Your friends, our friends, City Football Group, you started this war. They could fix yeah. up the A-League and Australian soccer with their loose change. They could. And, and run the game, you know, finance the game for the next 20 years if they wanted, which so, is a question I will ask Simon Pierce tomorrow. Exactly. Why, I'll be why, asking the same question. Hmm? Having said that, Frank, they, Frank Lowy could have fixed the game with his spare change. Could have given back $46 million. Well, we'll get brought back to the the next part of the debate, which was going to be the R word, which is ridiculous because football's always had ridiculous, you know, ideas time to time. What's what's the most ridiculous idea to fix football that's <laughs> right, ever think, been? They're going to say Star Wars around again. Um, <laughs> Enlarge the goalposts. Who said that? Ian Brzezko, former ch- chairman of the uh, Australian Soccer Federation, said we should make the goals bigger. <laughs> Oh, you probably wouldn't. It would have been in the eighties, um, late eighties. Wasn't there a journalist who that? recently yeah. repeated that down in Melbourne? Yeah. Yeah. He wanted, and he was serious. So, what did he, was this like yeah. on record? Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. He was on record saying we, we need to make the goals bigger because we need to score more goals. Mm. What, what, what did he have like, like in terms of dimensions? No, or? no. <laughs> How was his tenure as on the on the federation? Short. <laughs> like most of them didn't last long. You would have some great anecdotes from your time, surely, of the most ridiculous idea. Well, no, I just was thinking about that. Um, there was at some stage talk. I mean, everyone tried to copy the Big Bash League. Like everyone was like, what do we do? What's the Big Bash equivalent of for soccer? Uh, we'll just play 10-minute halves. Um, um, and I remember at one stage there was sort of talk about reducing, reducing the A-League to like about a 10-week yeah. competition. <laughs> that, that conversation went around. We were like, no, no one's going to take it seriously. Wait, wait, wait. Where did that come from, though? Uh, within the corridors of power and, <laughs> and organisation. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, start with an N, finish with a C. Um, no. Um, so I think that's the most ridiculous I've heard. Mm. I, I think, they were, I think they were trying to change the well, – if, <laughs> That reminds me of the great Mike Charlesworth story, if he's listening, um, with uh, telling oh, telling Phil Moss that on, on corners, um, remember he's, he had the, so Mike Charlesworth, Central Coast Mariners owner, um, I think this has been printed so I can say this, um, told Phil Moss as, at the time when he was the Central Coast Mariners um, coach, he said, I really want this team to go viral. And, and Mossy's like, well, we're not going very well at the moment, so that, that could happen naturally. Um, and he said, no, so what I'm thinking we should do is when players, when, when they take the corner, like in a line-out in rugby union, I think one of our defenders should lift one of our strikers and then they should try and head the ball in like that because that's what they do in rugby and I reckon that would work. And he was fair income. He was actually serious Who about that. Who printed this? Yeah, no, that's been in – I think Mossy's told that story before. So that would that, have been against the rules, wouldn't it? I'm just trying to think whether they could have well, got away it, with that. Is it against the rules because you're lifting your own player? Probably you not. Say, Charles, you it's it's actually you genius. A, could, <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely well, genius. What if you, what if you put a player way. on your, like, they could sit on your shoulders? Didn't Charles also say he didn't care how, how much the team lost by as long as they played good football? Yeah, pretty much, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're trying to. You're, you're thinking. Games, as long as <laughs> you've got to have it. You've got to have a good classy, surely. Um, I don't know whether I have. To be honest, I mean, the most ridiculous thing I've seen, we got it. It's VAR. So, 
Uh, it always comes back to that. I, I remember that uh, a couple. Was it a couple of seasons ago? And he and he got absolutely pilloried for it. But Gregor Rourke suggesting that perhaps when when we had corners, we might have music being played. No. Well, no. that was that's the big bash factor again. <laughs> yeah, again, it's it's that yeah. you know let let's copy the other sports and do yeah. something to uh, jazz it up, but. No, I'm more intrigued about the ten week season. That would have been, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that, Imagine that. <laughs> that was an internal conversation at yep. a certain place, wasn't it? Mm. That we might have yes. worked up. <laughs> of course, you can. It came up with the idea it was the Fox Sports or, the, or from the A Leagues about interviewing the players like pre-game, half-time, because no one else in the world does that, and it's quite annoying. And you can see generally the frustration. They do yeah, do it overseas. They do. Yeah, yeah, they just do not that. at halftime, but can every, other you, league, every other league does. Can, can I tell you in Brazil, <laughs> you're allowed to run onto the field and, interv- and interview a player after he's scored, and you're allowed to interview a player as he's coming off on a stretcher. How are you, mate? <laughs> How are you going? Oh, you're dead. You're dead. Oh. You, can, you can do all that. Yeah. No, no, was that a decision actually by you guys? Yeah, it's just player access, yeah. All right. Same with dressing room cameras. I'm going to open up into questions in a second, but I just want to finish off on something positive. Who is, this is going to all three, in person with your own set of eyes, the best player, best performer, or best player you've ever seen? Pelé. <laughs> but where and when? Well, oh, I saw him play against Socceroos 72 or 73 at Sydney Sports Ground. Yeah, it was just different, different class. And that stadium was packed to the rafters. It couldn't have fitted another person there. And just just watch the highlights of him and what he did. He was just he was just a phenomenal player. I know you probably was a messy. No, <laughs> but yeah. Did you have a Pelé. Zapruder film or what? How, so, how, what's that? Zapruder. What did they use? Oh, Zapruder. Yeah. Was it the JFK assassination? No. If you go on YouTube now and you see some of his highlights, and they're just unbelievable what he could do in the field. Yeah. I know everyone talks about Ronaldo and. And Messi and whoever, but for me, <laughs> he best player I ever saw. Muzz. Greatest individual performance I saw live was during the 2006 World Cup uh, in Frankfurt, um, Mitch's old town. Um, Zinedine Zidane versus Brazil. Absolutely, like if, I've never watched a game when I've just gone. This bloke is on a completely different level to the other players on the park, and some of the other players on the park were pretty handy, e.g., Ronaldinho at the time and things like that. And in fact, that whole game, if I remember, was sort of it was uh, Zidane versus Ronaldinho. It was just phenomenal the difference between the two of them. He literally single-handedly won them the game and was so far ahead with everyone else in the field. That's the best individual performance I've ever seen in a football game. 2002 World Cup, Ronaldinho was pretty good as well. Yeah. I remember when he chose a certain keeper. Yeah, yeah. you had that. to bring that up to Simon, didn't you? Yeah. I remember watching that when I was in year six. Vince, will, Vince was also in year six at the time, so we can remember that. But, um, Shimmy, your, your, your uh, favourite? Uh, apart, apart from my two favourite Manchester City players, Colin Bell, who was my childhood idol, uh, and Georgie Kinkladze, who was fantastic. But in terms of being neutral, Dennis Bergkamp was three steps ahead of anybody I ever saw on a football field. Um, I happened to be there the, the day he scored against Argentina, the goal that came over his head and he controlled it. Boom. Sorry, Ezekiel. Um, and fired it into the top corner in Marseille's fantastic goal. And I watched him on several occasions as a commentator when I was with the BBC playing for Arsenal. It wasn't just his footwork or his ability to score goals or his ability to set up goals. It was the fact that up here, 
he was two steps ahead of everybody else. He was phenomenal. What about Australian players? Or what about in the A-League? Viduka. Yeah, in the A-League. Yeah, because look, this is, obviously you've caught a lot of A-League games and you've, you've all been to it, but what's just A-League-wise? Okay. Um, I would say Thomas Broich. Yeah. He, again, because up here he was smarter than everybody else. He knew – he saw – the game unfold quicker than anybody else around him. I, I just thought he was a phenomenal player. You can, you can look at other players like Barisha's probably the best finisher. Um, there are others as well. Archie Thompson was a very good finisher. Shane Smeltz was a very good finisher. But I think in terms of – and we, we all like watching creative players, players who can score goals but also set them up or, or thread the eye of a needle with a pass. And in A-League terms, that was Broich for me. Yeah, Broich. I would have said Broich. Um, although I must admit, I love watching Di Mounty. I yeah, uh, loved watching him last season. Um, loved watching Broich. Um, and to be fair, Honda, when he started at Melbourne Victory before he got injured, I thought was on another level too. I really enjoyed watching him. But just, you know, game in, game out, if you like. Um, Thomas Broich was a class above. I just yeah. you on that point about Di Mounty. Did FFA ever come to you about when he was in negotiations with Melbourne Victory about being no. a marquee and they didn't term him as a marquee because no. I think that's one of the most egregious things that yeah. happened during that time was the fact yeah. that they didn't deem him a marquee player so they didn't give him the funding. They had this idea Did that they he, ever speak? Yeah, they had this idea at the time that, and I, I sort of get where they're coming from, um, it's easy to kick them. So um, their, their idea was a little along the lines of if we're going to pay extra money, that person needs to... Um, be able to market the game for us. And part of their theory behind that was, therefore, do radio interviews, do TV interviews and all that yeah. sort of stuff. And that and they didn't think. So, again, metrics. say what you like. Yeah, it was all about metrics and, you know, does he have social media followers? Can he speak English? Um, therefore, that can they do radios? And that, that's what they're thinking. I mean, I'm like you. Imagine if we'd been watching him for the last five, six yeah. years. Yeah. Maybe we wouldn't be in the rut that we are. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? For you? Oh, no doubt in my mind, Matty Simon. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to go Hutch. <laughs> no, seriously, I've got to agree with Simon, Thomas Broyce out of this world, but I've, I've got a special spot for Milos Ninkovic. Mm. I just think he's something. I remember when he first joined the club and Arnie said to me, he said, this guy's going to kill the A-League. He's probably going to be the best player the A-League's <laughs> ever had. How many times did Arnie say that about yeah. a player? Though? First season. I, I remember he said yeah. the same thing about Chris Payne. Yeah. <laughs> and George Blackwood. Yeah, yeah, and George too. Blackwood. Chris Payne was the next Viduka. Yeah. yeah. But uh, the first season, Milos, I think he started late and had injuries. We didn't see the best of him. And after that, boy, oh, boy, did he step up. And Arnie, Arnie was right. But Carlos Hernandez yeah. was absolute. In those couple of seasons, yeah. Melbourne victory was a stunning player. But What about the NSL, though? Because this is you, you know. Uh, Andy Burnell and David Mitchell. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> <Good friends>. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, best player. Uh, I had a soft spot for Joey Watson, the late Joe Watson. He could play that guy. He was unbelievable, skillful, and a fantastic bloke. Died too young, but he was uh, Sydney City, and he was. He had all the skills. Just maybe a little bit slow, but he could do all sorts of tricks on the field. And terrific player. I think Mitch. Mitch, you knew Joey well. Mitch is gone. Oh, he's gone, is he? Oh, he's had enough. Of you, he's Gary. had enough, yeah. So, yeah, I'd say he was one of the best I've seen. Yeah, so. All right, before we open up to questions, is there any three, anything we've missed with you three? No, you you've really covered everything. <laughs> you've done well, Asia. Yeah. Can I just talk? Um, no, so, <laughs> just one thing that's close to my heart. I mean, I see a lot of young 
young people here, guys and girls who you know, want to forge a career in, in football journalism. And I Don't, know do it's, <laughs> Don't do it. Don't do it. It's so hard. It's really, really difficult now. The, the media landscape is shrunk. Yeah, it's, it's almost non-existent. I mean, we've lost sad. we lost Mike Cockrell, we've lost uh, or Johnny Taylor before him, Tom Smith is, myself. You know, there's good young guys, Vince, you know, doing a, doing a great job and, and that. But I get asked a lot over the years, you know, how do I become a, a journo, how to become a football journo. And I've, I've given some good advice, but I've also tempered it by saying, if you really want to do this, as Simon says, it's it's a really hard gig. Don't don't get your hopes up too high. And it breaks my heart to say that to them because that's their, their dream. It's also, it's also indicative, Gutty, of, of where the game's at, to be yeah. fair, isn't it? And the media. And indicative where the media is. But, but I'll, I'll, I'll say something to you. I remember when I first started going to press conferences, there would be Gutty, there'd be Vince, there'd be Emma, yeah. uh, there'd be Smitty's, there'd be Daniel Garb, there'd be a commercial network there. Yeah. And then if you would go to one now, there's no one there. No. And mm. is that, but do you think we'll ever recover? Like, do you think, or because, as I said, the media landscape is so much changed now where it's it's just going to be reliant on things like VNRs. And do you think Correct. it will? I just want to ask this to Gaddy. Is there the fear that there will be A-League games played with no journalists at? Like that, yeah. like, well, look what's happening with yeah. AAP. I don't know yeah. if that situation's changed now. You know, yeah. They won't have the, so the Central, staff to do it. Central Coast on a Saturday night, yeah. for example, Quite. particularly well, if no there's no, there. the Oz has got no Sunday paper or something like that, there'd no. be no one there. There'll be no one there. That's right. So, so, so Fox will have an issue there with the camera there for the yeah, press no, conference. No one to ask the question. There's questions. no one there to ask the question. Yeah. And then how do the but this is, this is where the, the game has got to step in, and there's you know there's been all this talk, and we'll probably hear more about it tomorrow with Danny Townsend and Simon Pierce. But if the game is serious about uh, uh, you know having coverage, or not just leaving it to the online world, actually producing some of its own coverage, then it has to start picking up the slack in that yep. regard, and it has to you know do what the AFL has done with AFL.com and the same NRL.com. You know they employ their own journalists. Okay, that. Is then going to compromise your editorial, you know, independence so to an extent? Is yep. that, but especially in football, is that the biggest fear as well? But that's, but this is the way it's. I think it's going to go in all sports eventually because the media beast is changing. We're seeing that. You know, people's con consumption habits with media have irrevocably changed. Um, I don't think we're going to go back to the days of you know people watching programs on mass on free to air television or even on pay television. It, everything's fragmented now, yeah. so you you have to respond to that challenge. And whilst it's a, it is a big challenge for the game, I think it also opens up a lot of opportunities, um, particularly with the other codes now being locked into long term deals mm. with both free to air and pay TV. It represents an opportunity for us to go out and claim that new space, but. You know, they've got to invest in it first. Big issue too is they're not going to the games to cover them, covering them off TV. Vince, we've had to do that with the Asian Champions League, covered off the off the TV because they're not sending anyone. We've been doing that for years. That's right. You yeah. guys do that as well. That sort of takes away the, uh, the, the charm of being a journo because you, you're not having that face-to-face -face interaction after a game with, you know, with a coach and maybe a interview a player or whatever so i think that's just pure economics isn't it and yeah. you know in fairness you can i mean murray and i were, were lucky along with andy harper for many years and uh you know a lot of other media organizers 
organisations were the same. They, they would pay to send us overseas to cover the Socceroos World Cup qualifiers. And, you know, we went to some fantastic places. We had the best of it, really. Yeah. But I can't see that that's going to come back. Come back. Unless they're, you know, massive World Cup qualifiers or big major tournaments because the media companies just do not have the money anymore because they're not getting the revenues from advertising sponsors. So I think the whole thing has, has changed and it's in a, a, a huge state of flux. And I think going forward, it's very scary for everybody at the moment, particularly for all of us because we've all lost our jobs. Mm -hmm. But, you know, going forward, it's going to evolve into something different um, and that will present opportunities, not just, you know, hopefully for us as well, but particularly for the next generation. So going back to what we were saying, Trev, chime in here if you want. So if there's no – so Central Coast play Wellington, for example, on Saturday, there's no journo there. If I pick up the paper the next day and want to read a match report, I'm not. not. So the only way you're getting a match report would be from the Central Coast's media manager writing mm -hmm. a match report, which, which is, is obviously – Just a blow-by-blow. Blow. <laughs> yeah, it's actually a blow-by-blow. Which blow. you can see on TV. Or, or I'm watching the video. So, mm, I mean, where, where does that leave newspaper content, for example – Websites. Well, well, I don't. well uh, so there's politician comes out, minister of the crown comes and uh, to say something. There are no journalists there. There yeah. three cameras, but no journalists there. So the the, the order comes. Well, the political talent comes out, makes a statement, and then goes back and loses. Mm. Mm. That is already happening. It's been happening for quite some time. So uh, the the best you can get is some kind of do they genuinely call it political talent? Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. I, I sometimes think we forget about the, the quality of the product that's being delivered mm. in terms of we're saturated globally, you know, watching great football everywhere. Um, I find it hard to watch A-League first. Mm. Kind of pains me to say that. Um, but having played at higher levels and being able to watch whatever you want to watch now, some of the, the products in it. You try watching Wellington Phoenix, Central Coast Mariners, a Bruce Stadium mm. in front of 200 people um, when there's no relegation, when there's no promotion. But I, I agree with your point. I, my response to that is always, I, I think that's because you don't have an emotional investment in a team. Mm. And that's the, that, that's one of the big things I think that's missing from the A-League at the moment is that we've lost that sense of tribalism. We talked about it earlier on today. We, in, in many ways, we killed it off ourselves. But people aren't emotionally invested in the outcome of the team. I always use the you know, I'm a Man City fan. In the late 90s, we got relegated to the third division. You couldn't with a straight face say, Oh, well, my team plays fantastic football. That's why I go and support them because they weren't. They were crap. They were awful. It didn't matter. I still went every week because they were my team. That was my colours. And we don't have that here. I mean, we have it to a certain extent here. But, you know, people in general, they go, oh, the A-League's crap. And I think they're mistaking quality for emotional investment because you get bad games in every league. You get bad games in the Premier League. Um, it's the same in Croatia, Spain, you know, all these leagues. If we're just going to say, well, we're not as good as the Premier League, well, then we may as just, uh, you know, the whole world might as well just watch the Premier League and not worry about the other 200 leagues. On that too, Birch, do you reckon um, the fact there's only 10 teams, right, or 11, 12, um, which means there's not a lot of coaching gigs 
for top level coaches in the country, right? So coaches are constantly worried, and you talk to them all yeah. the time. They're always worried about losing their job, um, which is fair enough because if they lose a job in the A League, you're going to battle to get another A League job. And most of those A League coaches don't want to go back to NPL. Um, so they become very worried about losing, and they put teams out there not to lose not necessarily to win, and that affects the standard of the football, which probably goes back to more what we're saying. If we could get 16 A-League teams and there's more opportunities for coaches, because we always talk about opportunities for players, let's talk about opportunities for coaches as well. And a second division. And if we've got a second division too, then you might see teams going out there actually trying to play better football. That's why it takes a brave coach these days to go, come on, let's go out and have a crack. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've seen, we've seen a few of them and they've now gone on to bigger and better things. Yes. But there's coaches that are constantly worried about, I don't want to lose my job, don't want to lose my job. Mm. Yeah, but, Miles, uh, I think we're pretty positive here in Australia. And I mean, we don't really have defensive football yet. More so in the last few years, you reckon, Phil? Uh, it's more like Younger coaches standard. making their way up, yeah? Yeah, but it's more like the standard this It's not tactically. It's not like become negative all of a sudden. It's the standard that Mm. How do how do you measure that though, Phil? That's it's just the beauty in the eye is in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? Well, um, I reckon that it's just the individual quality of players generally has fallen. I think it's I think it's a perception because the 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 whole group think around the A League is that it's shit. Mm. And the, the ratings are dropping and the FFA is in a mess and the governance is, you know, I think it all plays into the perception that the A-League's a bit crap. And I actually don't think it is. No. I think some no. of the games are poor, but I, I think some of the games in the Premier League are poor. I think the quality is th I think the quality is, it varies the same as in a lot of uh, leagues. Oh, it is at times. It is at times. Excuse me, I would say. You, George, were you going to say something? Sorry, mate. Did you play some of the games in front of, you know, four games you're saying in front of yeah. 100%. Shimmy, you mentioned the national second division, and I'll just pivot to Gaddy here because you're obviously around during the you know the, the NSL days, and a lot of those were you know the ethnic clubs, and a lot of these national second division clubs are those old ethnic clubs. Do you think they're the tonic to fix the game in terms of getting that? Because it's almost like they shunned them all those years ago. Yeah, now they want them back, and now they want them back because that's what I mean. Because these clubs. They've stuffed up in that sense of making that emotional connection with the community. Some have done it. Sydney FC now is pick, picking up over, you know, 14 years of missed opportunities. But do you think that's what's going to happen? Do you think that's the way a way back? Look, I think we need a second division. I'm worried about the finances, how it's, how it's going to work out. That the second division is not going to be the panacea. It's not going to save Australian soccer. A lot of our... You need a whole lot of other things to help save Australian soccer. One concept, second division is not going to do it. So, you know, for all its good and positivity, and I, I like the idea and think we, we need promotion and relegation as well, I think we, you know, it's, it's, it's got to be a part of a whole combination of things 
that will get the game going forward. You know, the, the one thing that I, I've said this before that is almost completely absent from any sort of discussion that surrounds football in Australia. We talk a lot about player pathways, youth development, coaching pathways, um, standard of, of games, uh, money. What we what we don't talk about is fans. We've got more than enough players. We've got more than enough coaches. Um, we've got TV coverage. But what we don't have is enough fans either going to the stadiums or watching on TV. And, nobody, you know, I, I brought this up with James Johnson the other week because out of the 11 principles, I think the, the word fans, I think he got two mentions. And it was, you know, it's saying the right things, but there was no, what, what's the plan to get that emotional connection to, to, or to reestablish it in some ways with clubs like the Wanderers who had it for a certain period of time and then we killed it off stupidly. Um, but there doesn't seem to be any sort of a. It doesn't. That those supporters don't seem to resonate with people, and and that's the key to everything. I think you get enough people watching the stadiums, you get enough people watching on TV. All of a sudden, everything else starts to fall into place, and we don't have it. A lot of restrictions. Absolutely, that's part of it. That's part of the solution. The supporters mean everything. What we're seeing this at the moment in the Premier League, football without fans is nothing. It's like watching a training session. It was said earlier on today. And yet we accept in this country that uh, every season the stadiums are A, too big, B, three quarters empty, and we never have a plan to fix that. Why is that? We've got plans for youth development and coaches and everything else coming out of our ears, but never to get that emotional connection between supporter and club, which is the most important thing that everywhere else in the world has. But... But yep, absolutely. That's that's part of it. But I think again, we got we we make the mistake of thinking that's our supporter base. That one point six million plus. I think a lot of them are. To be, to be fair, but I don't think that's the exclusive answer. We we constantly look at that player's base and go, that's that, that's the the conundrum we have to solve. It's part of it, um, but there's also you know there's thousands of people across the country. Just for example, who get up at two three a.m. in the morning and drive to go to the pub to watch Liverpool, Man United, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Bayern Munich, whoever else it is. You know, I'm the same. I've done it myself. Mm. But they won't go five minutes down the road to watch Sydney FC or Western Sydney Wanderers because the perception is that's crap. Because they don't have that emotional connection to the club. How do we fix that? I think I think a lot of sorry. I know I'm dribbling on. A lot of a lot of people play football for different reasons. Um, I always use this example. I played a bit of social tennis. I love tennis. Love playing it. Have a hit, you know, once a week. Would I go and buy a ticket for the Australian Open? No. I ain't that interested. And I think a lot of people are the same who, who play football. They play it for fitness or fun or because their mates do, because their son or daughter does. doesn't necessarily mean they're going to go and buy a ticket to go and watch an A-League game. So I think it's part of the solution, but I don't think it's the, the entire answer. How hard are you going to go tomorrow? Uh, as hard as I'm allowed to. But, but it's Chatham House, isn't it? So, yeah. Well, no, because it's not <laughs> out of the room, so you can... Yeah, yeah. I'll have a go. Butch. Touching on, on the tribalism thing, I really uh, I really agree on that one, and there's a problem within the A-League, I think, with regard to that. 
Um, I played against Adelaide City teams that had seven Socceroos in the side, all from Adelaide. Um, mm. So the fans you know, have an affinity. Have Local a, identity. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, played for Sydney Olympics yeah. against the Marconi side with 12 internationals over both sides, three quarters of the sides from Sydney. Um, now the A-League, you can go watch Central Coast Mariners or, or Brisbane or something and you might get one or two. But it, to me, Birch, I'm sorry, it's, maybe it's where I grew up. I, I had playing heroes as well. Colin Bell was mine. I mentioned it already. But it wasn't about him per se. It wasn't about the player who wears the shirt. It's about the badge on the front of it. Mm. And that's, that's what the connection we need to find. Because if we just base it around, well, we don't have this player, this type of player, we don't have a local player, we don't have a marquee player, we don't have this sort of player. As soon as those pl players come and go, so as soon as they disappear, you're inviting a fan to go, right, well, I'm off. And this, this was always the, the issue I had with people who said, you've got to play good football to get people involved. Well, not every team can play good football because one team's going to be better than the other. Somebody's got to finish top, somebody's got to finish bottom. So to say that if you're only going to turn up to watch successful teams, you're basically inviting the supporter to go, as soon as you're crap, I'm off. I'm taking my custom elsewhere. That's not how football works. You choose your club and you choose it for life. What's the old joke? You can change your wife or your husband or your house, your, you know, your pet or whatever, but you can't change. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. You can't change your football team. But, Jimmy, that's, that goes back, I think, to when they set it up. It's like, what do these clubs even mean? It's like Sydney FC, are they sky blue because Frank Lowe used to be involved with the Hakoa? Like, mm. is that, you know, like, is that... But is we that, should be past that now. But but is that what what do these clubs mean? Like, yeah. like that's for me always been the biggest issue as someone who grew up like following the Wilmer Wolves. It's like I went for all the teams in the local area, but you go into Eastern Sydney, the, the Sydney FC is supposed to represent Eastern Sydney, mm. aren't they? they? You wouldn't know they're even in Eastern Sydney. That's the problem. These teams don't know where their boundaries lie. There's no you know when you know you know all too well when you go to Manchester. Well, no. well, I'll tell you what would help. I mean, what, what's, the, what's the biggest single signpost? You know, for my club in Manchester, I go to my stadium. Yeah. There, there's, there's a big superstore there, right? It used to be a tatty little souvenir shop. But it's physical bricks and mortar on the ground. Mm -hmm. Now, Sydney FC are the most successful uh, team in Australia, have been for the last three or four seasons. Brilliant on the pitch, no, no questions asked. Mm -hmm. Do they own a stadium? Do they have an academy? No. Do they own a training ground? No. no. Do they... Do they own an office? I'm not even sure they even own it. So, so what? What are they? Mm. And and that's I think that's a, a problem as well. And some of the clubs do. You know, the Mariners have got bricks and mortar, um, one or two others. But there's that sense of then in, impermanent. Is, is impermanency a word? <laughs> it is now. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> two, two examples for you to get on either end of the extreme there of exactly what you're talking about. Adelaide United. Where's the uh, red, blue, and gold of South Australia? Lots of South Australian players play at a high march stadium, which is a football only stadium, which, you know, so much history in Australian football. South Australian football was created there. And then to another city where I used to live, Brisbane. So Brisbane Rural, we're orange and black. Uh, Brisbane Rural now train on the Gold Coast, and they now play in Redcliffe. And that's a two hour drive for anyone who doesn't know South East Queensland very well. Uh, from the Gold Coast to Redcliffe, which is not in the Brisbane city limits, and the club's called Brisbane. So there's one club that's got it absolutely right, and one that's got it wrong, and then it, it's not a mystery. 
Mm. Yep. Mm. Two right pins. Can I say something else to make putts getting a right pitch or not? <clears throat> and Simon, I know you're a Manchester City um, lover. Now, I, I go with this sound a difficult question for you. Here's a comment from me. <clears throat> when Manchester City took over Melbourne Hart, Melbourne Hart had a red and white vertical strip flight stadium. Yes. I thought it was quite nice. It was old fashioned. It didn't clash with Melbourne victory. It didn't look like Sydney FC. Now, <clears throat> when as the Manchester Group took it over, they must have said to the people, it's, he's warming up, Pete. He's getting up. Yeah, you're in trouble now. He's going to start yeah, running in a minute. Coming up the long run. <laughs> and Chris is going to follow him. Jesus. Manchester City, obviously the creed that Melbourne Heart were paying pale blue. Now that is sacrilege to a Victorian. I'm not a Victorian, but yeah, I mean, he's a person or a person. But to Victorian to play in pale blue, you might ask them to play to the State of Origin Blues in Rugby League or, or Sydney FC. It was the most blundering decision to make. I mean, couldn't they just take over the club and just say, hey, pick your colours, pick your name? I, I, totally don't I don't think it's that big, though. That? I totally agree. You're going home? But I don't think it's... Well, I don't think we had much choice. Yeah, um, they didn't have it really Because early. they bought it and it's their club. But I agree with you. And it's like for me, okay, Sky Blue means a lot to me personally, but it doesn't... I, I totally agree with you. It doesn't mean anything to people in, in Melbourne. And I, th I thought they missed a trick by... Okay, they've incorporated a little bit in their away colours, which is good. Um, but I think they they made it look too much like Manchester City. I remember, you know, going down there, they run out to Oasis. Apparently, I think their fans want that or like that. Well, it's great That's music. great for me, but I I do, how does that speak to people in Melbourne? I don't know. It wouldn't to me if I was from Melbourne. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, of course, it's, it's, it's a branding exercise. We, I mean, we all understand what, it, what it's for, and it means that they can put the Atti hat on and, you know, same colours and the city uh, suffix at the end of it. Um, it it's, a, it's a business decision. I totally understand why, but I don't think it speaks very much to, to people uh, in Melbourne, particularly when you had a club like Victory that were already very strong um, in the city. So for, for me, I've always said this, and I've, you know, I've said this to Simon Pearce and to Brian Marwood, um, Maybe that's why they don't speak to me very much anymore. Um, you know, their, their big point of difference, you've got to find a point of difference, I think, in a city, and particularly one in Melbourne where victory were already so very strong and AFL takes up all the other available oxygen. Their point of difference was they had lots of cash. So why didn't they go out and buy big-name marquees? That was their point of difference. Now, they said there wasn't a business plan for that. I would disagree with that. Their business plan was getting people like Aaron Moy for nothing and flogging him for $10 million. They made they made the money back on the investment. Absolutely, exactly. That's all they cared about. Anyway, look, maybe they will now that there's an independent A League. It's going to be interesting tomorrow, eh? When Simon Pearce is talking to me. Yeah. yeah. Do anyone do you follow two teams, Simon? Me? No. How many teams yeah. do you follow, Gatty? <laughs> you follow about eight, don't you, Gatty? Five. Four. <laughs> Celtic. Liverpool. Liverpool. Mariners. Preston. Why Tottenham? Preston. Uh, why Tottenham? Because when I grew up, um, as a lot of people in this room would attest, we didn't get much football on TV and what we used to get was probably the FA Cup. And when I was young and impressionable, um, Spurs were winning that and I loved Glenn Hoddle. And that's why I fell in love with Spurs and have followed them ever since. But what? Which is why a lot of kids run around wearing Manchester City jerseys these days. Why Liverpool? I read books on Liverpool as a kid in the library and 
I lived in Cabramatta. And you read a book. Books. Books. You read a book on Liverpool. Yeah. And <laughs> I read the Beano, but. <laughs> <laughs> and lived in Cabramatta, and next suburb was Liverpool. Just, oh, there's a connection there. So this kid followed, followed Liverpool. Adrian, so, why so, are you a Setsi fan? Um, because I needed a team to pick in 2001 when I turned 10. And oh, that makes me feel Thanks, um, <laughs> I didn't have a team, so my auntie had lived in the UK at the time and she said she'd been to Manchester and I liked to go for teams that were underdogs and Manchester City with this, you know, great underdog team. So I needed a team. My brother was going for Arsenal and I said, well, I'm going to go for Man. I liked blue. It was my favourite colour. And then the rest is history. And I, what, what taped my first ever game was Manchester City v Leeds on SBS 2001-02 season. They got done 3-0. And then I watched pretty much every game that I could after that. But that's how you fall in love. And that's the problem. I'm, we're talking about connection. Yeah. There's not, that's, I think that's the biggest core issue is because they've never, like, where there's a lot of younger people here in their 20s and 30s, is we can attest to that. It's like, you know, probably the experience was at its best days was those 2014, 2015 derbies when you go there, you get absolutely tanked. And it was the best experience because then the Warners and Sydney FC, I took my wife. You know, and she was a she was a rugby league cheerleader back in the day when she and she did it for the Raiders. Literally a rugby been, league cheerleader. She, no, she'd been spat at right. on the sideline, and she was. We sat next to the RBB, and she was saying, "Well, she like was fearful. Like she goes, why are people throwing stuff at each other?'" But it was the most intense experience she'd been to in a sporting event, and we had this great. And now you would go, and it's the most placid thing ever. And I think that says it all about, you know, I me mean? like those. Like that's what I mean. It's like if you can bottle that up. If they can somehow get back to that, but that's the thing. There's no, they've lost that. I don't know. There's just fans have been burnt. Yeah, they've been burnt. You know, and like you know, you 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 know, it's it's sad really because I think I think we can get back to that. But as I said, I think it's through the it's it's gonna take a lot, and it's it's not it's more of you know if you're if you're a player like we have all these players, why don't they just get free tickets to the game? That if you're a kid, if your kid's saying to your parent, oh, I want to go to the games. Well, the parents gonna you know you'd take Charlie for example, mm. but that's for me the way you fix it. It's like okay, there's all these kids playing. Give under everyone under thirteen a free ticket, and they'll go to the games. Mm. I don't know. I just think that's so simple, and it's like that's how you make your connection because the kids are the dreams, the ones that dream of playing up and growing up. So that's how I became a Dragons fan. That's heck how I become a Man City fan from watching the games from bloody Whoop Whoop, you know, over here in Australia, you know. Yeah, but the, I mean, the difference was is that my dad took me, so yeah. that was, and obviously I grew up in that. Enough of our dribbling. Yeah. Uh, just a question on that. Uh, with local clubs that are affiliated with A League clubs, is there an opportunity potentially with the fees being so expensive? You get like a three game pass or something or a four game pass. Well, you should you should get a free that's for me, that's the point. If you if you're registered in the Western Sydney like association, if you're under sixteen, you should get a or under thirteen. I don't know. I, I, that's what I, when I was a kid. I used to get a free pass to go to the Dragons games. You should get a free pass to go play. You should get a jersey when you register so you support that team. Because, heck, that's what they do in bloody Atalanta. That's the best story in football probably yeah. in the world right now. Every baby born every baby born in Eastern Sydney, my bub just got born, she's 10 away. She should have got a Sydney FC jersey, for God's sake. How forward thinking is that? Just go, all right, you get a onesie. I can't even buy a Matilda onesie, for God's sake. Sorry. It's something that's been suggested for many years, the the under-16 pass. If you, if you go and Can show I? your playing... Uh, cards, you know, at the, the, the stadium, you should get in for free if you're under 16. But they, for some rugby reason, they haven't done Simon? that. I don't know. Rugby league, yeah, rugby league. Yeah. and that's I'm, what I'm we're saying about rugby league. You and I, I went to school, school. You're, 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 you get a pass. Yeah. You know, all the sports like 
That's the thing. It's like you start the tribalism young, and that's what rugby league is going back to now. They go, went to every school and they gave every kid a pass to go to see rugby league. I think they're keen the on, NRL came along. I think they're keen on kicking us out. <laughs> oh, yeah, the cleaners have just come in. Wind us up. Wait, one more question. Umberto, you've got one more question, and then we're going to wind up. Just wanted to say a huge thank you uh, to Simon, Murray, to Ray, and for Adrian Lloyd, particularly much moderating. Uh, <laughs> absolutely fantastic and exciting session. Then the superb day. So thanks, guys. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Umberto. Thank you. Thank you. Observations. Um, on the ridiculous stories, I don't want to share. You can fuck around. In Australia, I was having dinner with a very senior executive from Channel 7, and I was telling him that football was really the sport, the world sport. And he said to me, no, I don't think so, not Australia. And then he said, actually, maybe if we played it in quarters. Yeah, there you go. Maybe if we did quarters, <laughs> because the advertisers are many quarters, maybe that would work. And that sort of summed up Australian media from year to time. A um, couple of quick observations. Cathy, I thought you did your best impression of Sham 69. The football was united. We would never be delighted. <laughs> <laughs> I expected Simon to get drunk at that told you how good that one was um thank you to all of those guys adrian plus gatty murray and simon hill we'd also like to thank johnny warren football foundation football nation radio synergy sports and streamgate for their support of of the football writers festival and of course fair play publishing we look forward to catching up with you again next week um, with another session on In Conversation with Remo Nogarotto. In the meantime, we hope you enjoyed the FWF Supper Club and it uh, encourages you to come yourself next year to the Football Writers Festival. Until we talk next week, stay safe and be happy. Thanks for listening to Football Insiders from the team behind Fair Play Publishing, home of the Football Writers Festival. Be the first to get inside access by subscribing. And to get more, head to fairplaypublishing.com.au.